Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been a few weeks. It, yes, it so has. We got to get into it. Indeed. Um, yeah, so why don't you get into it? Okay, so uh, I did not write down the correct order here, so I'm just going to bounce around. I saw Nocturnal Animals. I saw that as well, yeah. but it's not on my list. Okay, what did, a while ago. what did you, uh, well, I guess... We already heard what you thought. Yeah, I, my summation okay. is that I think it's a a, a, a very well made movie that has some powerful, if ultimately superficial, insights. I also will never watch it again because it's incredibly unpleasant. Okay, powerful but super but uh, superficial is what you said, right? Yeah, uh, maybe superficial isn't even the right word, but but it's a good word. For no, it. it is, but I think there's there's another word I'm 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 looking for that just means like uh, maybe almost like primal, like it has some okay some things to say that you don't have to be an intellectual to unpack nocturnal animals. Is what I'm saying. All right, but that doesn't necessarily rob it of its power. Here is my assessment. I liked it more than I thought I would. Uh, it's visually gorgeous as one would expect. Great performances all around, but, and it's, it's so interesting. I was talking with friend of the show, Jason Eakin about this. We have, we have two completely different reads on the, on the ending of the film. Um, and just the ending tone of the film. Hmm. Uh, I think that by the time you get to the end, I feel like this is a, uh, and maybe it's an issue with the book. Uh, it feels like a general story written by a 16 year old who whose girlfriend broke up, broke up with him. Yeah. But I, th- I think that's kind of the idea. It's definitely the primal part you're talking about. Yeah. The idea of the movie is that when, um, a man is jilted and such, when a man is emasculated, essentially, yes. it doesn't matter how mature or smart or how old he is. Like yes. it, it destroys him and turns him into, uh, a, a kind of monster, um, no matter what, I think that's that's the the point that it's trying to make, and I would like to th- I'd like to think more of myself than that. Mm-hmm. But I also know that there are things that I could relate to uh, in the movie. But I think that the film actually oh I can undoubtedly relate to it, but I feel like it's I feel like the film actually revels in, and I'm I'm reluctant to give specifics because it's a film that does have I would say spoiler type of things in it, um, but. The one of the characters' revenge, uh, for lack of a better term, revenge, uh, sort of an emotional revenge yeah. on the the woman that uh, that uh, jilted him, um, is something that I think the film is on board with. I think the film uh, is oh, sort of invigorated by. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I agree. Yeah, it's uh, and I think that's it, it's hard to say, but I do feel like the the last shot. Um, of a character sitting alone in a restaurant. Um, I feel like the film is saying, yeah, that's what you get. Just sit uh, here and think of all the bad things you did. I, I, yeah, I don't think that you're, you know, uh, I don't think you're making shit up that isn't there. I do think that that's sure. a legitimate read of the movie. To me, I think the movie more forgives it than approves of it. 
He's basically okay. saying like, this is sad for everyone, yeah. but can you blame the guy? Maybe is what the movie is saying to a certain extent. Well, and that's the thing. It's odd that you bring that up because uh, another thing, and that's, uh, we'll, we won't get to it yet, but uh, I, I've, I'm about two and a half hours into OJ made in America, mm-hmm. which remind, and it reminded me of that Chris rock bit about OJ Simpson where, uh, he's, he's talking about all the things that Nicole was doing, uh, you know, just kind of gallivanting around with all these guys. And Chris rock says, now I'm not saying he should have killed her, but I understand <laughs> now, of course that's, that's very callous, but it's funny. Uh, and yeah, so there, there's, there's an element to nocturnal animals where Tom Ford is saying, now I'm not saying he should have done this, Yeah, yeah, but I, I understand. I definitely um, think that's, but it's yeah, wonderfully acted. And I'll say, I'll say this, that, um, you know, those of us that are part of the Oscar draft were mystified at the inclusion and eventual win of Aaron Taylor Johnson for supporting actor in the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, it's. I think his performance is really good, and especially in his in the big scene where they where he and his buddies are, are terrorizing oh, yeah. his family. Oof. I mean, that is. You know, he needs to convey a certain type of menace without seeming like a like a a, a villain. Yeah. Uh, and I think he does. I think, I think Aaron Taylor Johnson has, uh, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's in good shape, but I think he's a character actor at heart. Yeah. And I think this is a, a really great performance by him. You know, the, uh, the other dude, I mean, there's three of them, but the other dude. Yeah. Uh, is the boyfriend from neon demon. Hey, yes, yeah. he is. I, uh, you know what? I didn't even realize that until just now. I um, saw natural animals first. So, okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, so it's a film that I think is is really well done, but ultimately, yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again for a number of reasons. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, I watched um, Sophia Takal's Always Shine. Okay. Um, there'll be a, a pattern here um, uh, in this movie journal, even though we're going back like three weeks. Everything will be from 2016 or 2017 because I am, uh, I, I am and have and I'm done cramming for our end of year episodes, which Indeed. are the next three episodes, like main episodes that we're, that we're doing. So, okay. uh, I, I took, you know, I made a, back at the beginning of 2015, I made a, like a new year's resolution to watch more old movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a month off as I usually do in January yeah. to just catch up on, uh, on recent releases. So there'll be no old movies. Anyway, wanted to put that disclaimer. So, uh, always shine was one that I, uh, really wanted to make a point to see before we finished our year end stuff, but it is not going to make and not going to end up making a dent in any of our, uh, or any of my, okay. um, uh, recap. It's uh, it's an interesting movie. The, it, the, the plot is that two, uh, friends, um, played by Caitlin Fitzgerald from masters of sex who's terrific. And, uh, Mackenzie Davis from a, a number of things. Um, I, uh, she was in, um, the Martian. She was a, like a NASA person, in the Martian. Um, and then I guess people know her from a TV show, Halt and catch fire that I have not watched. Oh, I know that show. Um, anyway, uh, so they play, they play friends, um, actresses in Los Angeles, um, who are in different places. Caitlin Fitzgerald's career. She works, constantly uh, as, as an actress but she works um almost entirely in l- low to mid-budget horror films that require her to appear naked That's, okay um um i'm not you know laying any like uh, moral value or judgment on that that's a big part of the the setup um whereas Mackenzie davis who uh, whose character is um Probably, and at one point, Caitlin Fitzgerald character even says, the better actress is 
um, struggling. She's, okay. she's not getting cash. She doesn't have management, um, but they're best friends. And um, Mackenzie Davis's aunt has a cabin in Big Sur. So they go to spend the weekend in Big Sur. And it's just sort of one of these, like it just becomes like a, um, Oh man. Well, like a pressure cooker, just mm-hmm. these two women in this space with all of their, uh, angst and recriminations yeah. and stuff, uh, bubbling up over, over the course of, of the weekend. And it's really fantastically well acted. And, um, it, it, it goes to some sort of, uh, um, extra reality type of places okay. that I, that I didn't uh, expect. Um, uh, I, I would say, it, um, this might be lazy, but I think it fits uh, some Lynchian places in the third oh, okay. in the third act. Um, Hot. Uh, I don't mean like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's I mean it's it's a it's a well made and again terrifically well acted um, little movie that's worth your time. But I think uh, ultimately the places that it arrives are predictable and not super uh deep okay all right fair enough uh next along those let's stick with predictable and not super deep i saw the we already talked uh, about an external yeah uh i saw the Werner herzog film lo and behold oh which i didn't care for this there are you know it's split up into different sections some of them i love some of them i think are merely okay um you know, one of the things that I really liked, you know, there's a, you know, Herzog sets up as he, he has such a, he has such an odd sense of humor, but he definitely has one. And so he's setting up like this apocalyptic hacker and then you see him and he's this unsurprisingly, he's middle-aged at this point, but uh-huh. this very nerdy looking guy, um, who would never, who would not seem very, uh, uh, intimidating or dangerous or anything like that. But then the guy talks about some of the things that he has done and it is it's really astonishing uh what he was able to accomplish and you realize that he's a hacker in a number of ways and one of them is just being able to navigate human behavior to get information he needs so that then he so he can then go into the more traditional style of hacking uh so i thought that was interesting and then people that uh uh, are you know addicted to the internet, uh, which seemed perhaps a bit histrionic at times. But as long as the people are speaking for themselves, mm-hmm. that's when it's when I think it's it's very interesting. And so, um, yeah. But sometimes he speaks for them. Yes. When he's like, they're probably thinking about their malevolent dwarf or <laughs> <laughs> there's like yeah. orcs that they want to. Yeah. Uh, and so it's 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 fu- you know it's funny at times, and there there are elements that I. Think think are really interesting i would say that the the film's biggest problem is that it should have been like an eight-part miniseries there's just it feels like it's just truncated and anytime you are trying to explore something and then you shorten it you're going to go a bit broader with it you're going to simplify things a little bit and and i think that's what the film ultimately feels like to me is it's still it's still entertaining and it's still interesting and i learned some things about it but i also feel like it's Werner herzog trying to sum up uh something that cannot be summed up or yeah. you know if you did if you devoted 8 hours to it that would even that would be a summing up but you know 40 uh, an hour and 40 minutes most certainly feels like he's only skimming the surface and the fact that he seems content to do that is i think a problem yeah no i think you've 
put your finger on most of my problems with the movie. Uh, there was a, a, a trend in 2016 of directors having multiple movies because he had this and Into the Inferno, which yeah, is much which I've better. Which I've heard great. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, much, much better. Jeff Nichols had two. Yeah. Um, uh, Jim Jarmusch had, had two. That's right. And... My next uh, okay. movie, moving on, Peter Berg. I was, wa- I was wondering why you were making that point. Yeah, Peter Berg had two movies. Yes. Um, but let's put a pin in that because I forgot to ask you, do you know what my favorite part of Lo and Behold is? I mean, we talked about it months ago on the movie journal. Okay, well, uh, it's if I had to guess, I'd say it's when he asks an odd question. Uh, uh, not necessarily, actually. Okay. Uh, well, I certainly like when you know there's the, the there are the soccer-playing robots, and he asks one of them, like, and then they say, oh, this one is the best one. And they and he says, do you love it or something like that, <laughs> which is, you know, that. And then when he says, d- d- he asks somebody, does the Internet dream of itself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he asked more than one person that question. Yeah. Uh, but um, what is your favorite? Part? My favorite part is when he's talking to Elon Musk and Elon Musk is talking about colonizing Mars. And he mm-hmm. says, just sort of casually says, like, of course, it's hard to get people to volunteer for a lifelong mission to Mars. <laughs> and before he can even go on to the rest of his, th- his thought, <laughs> Bernard Herzog goes, I'll go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes right. that is that's marvelous and i did laugh out loud at that all right uh deep water horizon i watched oh, okay. um and uh it's interesting because this movie came out before patriot's day mm-hmm. but i saw it after and so i think i went in more skeptical of it because i hated patriot's day so much right um and was pro- so on the one hand i was probably harder on it um than I would have been otherwise. But on the other hand, I was maybe giving it a pass at some points because yeah. it's not Patriot's day. Yeah. Um, uh, Deep water horizon is, uh, not a great movie. It's, um, uh, Peter Berg is maybe the most talented director who consistently doesn't make great movies. <laughs> like, I feel yeah. like, why is he like, uh, he, I, you can see the raw talent when yeah. it, when it comes to to building suspense suspense and laying out character relations to one another and especially in a community like Friday Night Lights is obviously his yeah. best movie right and I think I do like the rundown but uh, the rundown's but I think, a lot of fun I think Friday Night Lights yes probably um, and I think the early parts of Deepwater Horizon when you, when when Mark Wahlberg and um, uh, and Kurt Russell and um, uh, Jane the Virgin. Uh, Gina Rodriguez, is that her name? I don't know. When their characters first get to um, the, uh, you know, because people work in like week, like multi-week shifts right. on out on the on the rig. So when they first get there and they're like seeing the people they haven't seen for a few few weeks, and like there's this sense of building the community and this sort of um, working class camaraderie that's really fantastic and like. Peter Berg is good at that and should you put it to more use. Um, and, uh, but then I think, um, the, the, the villain characters, um, played mostly by, um, John Malkovich and, uh, uh, Buddy Garrity. Um, I can't remember the actor's actual oh, name. Okay. Uh, I know it. I do not know it. I know Buddy Garrity. Yeah. Though. Is it Brad something? That sounds Brad right. Leland. Is that his name? That sounds pretty close. Okay. Let's say it's him. Um, uh, I, I think it's a little, uh, it's a little broad and way too foreshadowing with like 
the uh, you know to almost not to the point of Billy Zane and Titanic, but yeah. like to the point where these characters are so full of hubris that the movie is like telling you uh, everything that they're saying isn't going to happen is obviously going to happen. I, I wasn't expecting bit- to hear the term villain as you were talking about Deepwater Horizon. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the the movie is not. I don't think yeah. you know sponsored by bp not battleship pretension oh, but right. british petroleum uh but the b the name bp the bp logo you know and john malkovich and brad leland i think is that they play actual care like real oh, okay bp executive oil executives um who were on the raft at the time to- or yeah. uh, not the raft the um uh, rig. The rig at the time um uh i, I think that's a little uh, a little simple and then yeah i guess once once shit goes wrong, it's there's a lot of spectacle, and I I, I I think Peter Brook's really good at it, but I think he loses sight of the fact that he's telling a real story about you know a recent story about real people, and he 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 loses uh, some of that um, sadness and, and respect. Where at, at a certain point, it just becomes a big action movie. Do you, do you think Peter Berg is hamstrung by his mainstream sensibilities? Like everything that people complained about with Patriot's day involves taking a, a story that could make a good movie and imprinting a worse movie onto it, but a much more mainstream populist film. And it sounds like with this, like the idea of, okay, we got to take these two people and make them into Billy Zane from Titanic. Uh, it, that's, those are mainstream, uh, uh, elements. Here's the difference. Here's, um, because yes, I do think it is, um, mainstream, but it's two different kinds different kinds of mainstream. We're talking about Titanic. I'm a big James Cameron fan. Mm-hmm. He's also a guy with mainstream sensibilities. Yes. The difference is James Cameron trusts the story he's telling he builds it he builds the mainstream part of it from the ground up yeah and then trusts that the 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 crowd pleasing parts that are now embedded in the center of his stories will will carry and will carry through the shitty dialogue and stuff like that whereas i think peter berg to some extent in deepwater horizon and definitely in patriots day doesn't trust it and then ends up imprinting extra stuff to try to make it more uh, it's, he, he's, he's applying his mainstream, uh, um, tendencies externally as opposed to internally organically. Yeah. Uh, in that sense, he's more like a Roland Emmerich, um, mm. which is, uh, if you, you know, if you're a listener of the show, uh, for some time, you know, that's not a favorable comparison for me to make. I'm not a Roland Emmerich fan, uh, in, in general, um, or at all. I don't think I like any of his movies. Um, is that true? Do I like, it's been a long time since I've seen Stargate. <laughs> it really like, I recall and, liking Stargate at the time but and I never I was saw young. Anonymous um, I was intrigued that he chose to make Anonymous but I don't think I would like it that much um, and so yeah I think maybe part of it is Peter Berg maybe needs to get out of his own way uh, a, yeah. a little bit you know um, and he needs to get away from Mark Wahlberg who I think has it's something about him like uh, this is going back to something we've talked about a billion times with separating the art from the artist. There are certain like Mark Wahlberg, there's a certain Mark Wahlbergness, Yeah. That, um, <laughs> I can't forget anymore. And I think that's the, that's understandable. I think because when it comes to big movie stars, they bring some of their off screen personality to sure. all of their roles. You know, that's what, that's a lot of times what makes a mainstream movie star is that you see the same traits that you like 
from roll to roll. And I think Mark Wahlberg had that for a while. And now I think it's gone. It's, it's tipped or it's soured maybe. And now, even though I think Mark Wahlberg is, um, more talented than he has any right to be and can tap into a certain, uh, naturalism and electricity and charisma on, on screen. Um, uh, I, I, I can't help anymore thinking about the dumb idiot that Mark Wahlberg is. Well, he just needs to, I think. And of course it's always fun to have internet critics talk about what an actor needs to do. But, uh, I think he just needs to step back into some really solid character roles again, like mm-hmm. in I heart Huckabee's and the departed. Like that's when he really, I think, shined as an actor and he's a he's a he's a charismatic leading man um but i feel like there's a a quality to him and he and he does he he can play working class very well which is why he he does work for deep water horizon or something like lone survivor and the 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 same time like the opening scenes which is him and kate hudson is and his as his wife and and their daughter are and this is a the perfect blend of the skills of Mark Wahlberg and the skills of Peter Berg. Mm-hmm. It's so naturalistic and so warm. Um, and even though it basically, the entire scene is about his daughter is going to give a school presentation about what her daddy does on the raft. Yeah. And it's all just exposition. So you understand yeah. in basic terms, how the, I keep saying raft, the rig. Uh, and so you understand in basic terms, how this works and what his job is and what they're trying to do. So when it goes wrong, you have uh, at least a superficial understanding of it. It's so bald faced that it's exposition, yeah. but everyone is so natural, uh, that, I, you don't mind that it's actually a really charming scene. I would love to do an episode about exposition. Oh yeah, we should do that. Let's and just like, write that down. like good examples, bad examples and like, and, and the opportunities that, a, that uh, an exposition scene can afford a filmmaker. Um, hmm. It's odd that I haven't thought of that until now. Uh, we should move on if that's all right. Yeah, we definitely should. We've okay. Got a lot to do. <laughs> yes, we do. Okay. I'll try to speed. Some of these we will be speeding through. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I saw pop star never stop, never stopping. Yeah. Marvelous. That's what I hear. It is. I know it made uh, Ian Brill's top 10 of the year list. Yes, it did. You can find that at battleshippretension.com. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I had heard by the time I saw it, I had heard, you know, really great things about it, but, um, and it lived up to them. It is, it's the, it, people have compared it to this, a spinal tap. And I think it is an apt comparison. Um, it has a nice heart to it. It's remarkably funny. It sends up everything that it, that it touches. Um, the, the world of just pop culture in general, but then also, the world of modern music and the spectacle that comes with it. Uh, and it, I think it approximates the world of TMZ really well. Uh, it is a, the film is a BP nominee for uh, Will Arnett for the Bruce McGill and the insider award for best performance under 15 minutes. And she plays you, the, the, the Harvey Levin character in, in that real, real quick. Let's when we'll get back to pop star, but to talk about the BP's nominations, sure. which you can also find at battleship retention and the, um, uh, best performance under 15 minutes award, which is a great idea that you had. Um, and I think is, uh, the most fun category that we have. And we actually. just keep adding words to it, which I um, like. <laughs> you keep adding words to it. <laughs> um, are you as bummed as I am that neither Keanu Reeves nor Christina Hendricks from the Neon Demon got nominated because more, I nominated more, both of them. I nominated Keanu Reeves as my number one 
uh, for that film. Christina Hendricks didn't make like with that category, you know, I keep my list going throughout the year, but ultimately I, I have to go by who has made a lasting impression. I don't really remember Christina Hendricks that well. Hmm. I remember Keanu Reeves really well. And I was very, I'm bummed that neon demon was not nominated for more stuff like cinematography and score and, and yeah. that one especially. Yeah. Yeah. Score. Definitely. Um, I surprised you don't remember Christina Hendricks has the part where after she meets with, uh, um, L Fanning. Yeah. I was going to say Dakota L-, L Fanning. Um, and then she walks past the three other like, girls like you know model or potential models waiting to meet with her and she just stops she like grabs something off the desk that she's there and she stops looks at the three of them and points at one and says you can go yeah (laughs) it's so cold and awful yeah uh she's and it's a great little moment i think she's yeah she is very good uh in that and she was on my list for a while but um so to i will say to to get back to pop star it's a film that not unlike this is spinal tap spinal tap like its songs are so spot on perfect and ho- and unlike walk hard, which is a f- perfectly fine film, but those songs aren't quite funny enough. That film isn't quite funny enough. It's a really good send up of, you know, modern musical biopics, but it actually starts to fall into it. And before you know it, it's actually just a dramatic, it, it, it embraces the drama of it. And so, uh, and the songs are only mildly funny and they're catchy, but that's it. These songs are remarkably funny, uh, because they are so dumb, but they're really well produced and it just feels like they could be, they're just a few degrees away from like what a modern hit would be. And, you know, great performances all around. Andy Samberg, uh, hits just the right notes of stupid, but he's not a complete idiot. He just has been allowed the stupid aspect of him as a person has been allowed to flourish. And now that's mostly what he is. Um, it really is just a, a really it's, I think it's maybe the best comedy of the year. Oh, um, I, I laughed out loud many, many times while I was watching it. And I, and I think, it. I think everybody would enjoy it. You know, as far as best comedy of the year, I'm still team love and friendship. Sure. But, uh, very different tones. I gotta say, <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, moving on to a movie. This is what happened where, well, yeah, you're not a, a, a social justice warrior to the extent that I am. I'm trying to be, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Uh, sometimes something in the culture will become a cause. Sure. And you want to like it. It's sort of like, you know, Green Day was very anti-George W. Bush. Sure. I, I want to like Green Day. I want to like American Idiot. Yeah. I can't. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, it, this, I, I so wanted to come on here and tell you how great a movie Paul Feig's Ghostbusters is. I wanted to come mm. on and tell you that it's better than Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters. That it's uh, uh, that it that it's a, a, a shining beacon. But it's it's just a limp movie. Yep, it's not very good uh, at all. Um, it, it's it's really unfortunate, and it's, it's especially unfortunate given the cause that I'm talking about because it, there was it was the subject of so much. I would say. Um, uh, sexist misogynist hatred mm. on on the internet it's especially unfortunate that 
the funniest stuff in the movie is not the main characters because the, the, and it's because it, it's not because they're not funny. It's because the lame script saddles them with too much lame character and narrative stuff. And then it's the other people who don't have to worry about the dumb story that get to have fun. Like Chris Hemsworth is very funny. And in his two or three scenes, uh, Andy Garcia is so great. Yeah. The, do you know my? Ba- okay, I'm gonna play this game again. Okay. Do you know what my favorite part of uh, uh, of Ghostbusters is? It's, it's I wouldn't be surprised if it's your favorite part too. It's been a while, so I don't remember the exact phrasing. But he said he ultimately says like, "Do not compare me to the mayor from Jaws." Yeah. Um, well, she, Kristen, we like bursts in on his like fancy lunch. Yeah. That he's having with his uh, assistant, um, and I think uh, either his daughter or his wife. I can't remember. Um, uh, and he's trying to she's yelling at him and he's being sort of like decorous and you know, political and like he's, he's being diplomatic. Yeah. And then she says, uh, don't be the mayor from jaws. And he's like breaks and points at her with his fork. (laughs) And he says, do not compare me to the jaws mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Favorite line in the entire movie. Unfortunately. Uh, and Um, and my, it is not my favorite line. My favorite line is, is Leslie Jones just saying very matter of factly when uh, she comes across all those mannequins and she goes, yep, just a, just a room full of nightmares. I'm moving on. Um, I, I forgot my other favorite line. Okay. And then we'll move on. It's just unfortunate that the movie just, uh, has, um, we'll talk about this actually at the end of, uh, my movie list. Um, it's unfortunate when comedies get too beholden to by the numbers narratives, uh, and it takes away from the ability to make jokes. Uh, and it's also always, almost always, I can think of a very few, uh, exceptions. It's, um, almost always a bad idea when a comedy relies too heavily on CGI. And action in uh, general, like it, the one of the reasons that the original Ghostbusters works so well is because it is that rare combination of action, special effects and comedy that works. And the reason it works is because it creates characters mm-hmm. that you are interested in. And so they will carry you through the comedy. They'll carry you through the CGI and they'll carry you through the action. These characters are nothing. And even, I mean, everyone loved Kate McKinnon in it. I think she's fine, but I feel like you need some type of anchor with her. And I got nothing. They literally have her do every crazy thing there is to do. And it's like, well, now I just don't, she's just a living cartoon. And I don't find that interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, the thing is I liked Melissa McCarthy when you first meet her and I think you lose some of her character, but the first time that you go, that, that Crystal week goes into the, um, 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 the, the lab and meets, uh, you know, it's a, she's re reconnecting yeah. with Melissa McCarthy and that's where she meets Kate McKinnon for the first time. That's a nice little scene. Actually, yeah. you, you can feel the, their history and, and tension there. And when they're going to investigate the ghost and she says, uh, they're out the way the door and she says to Kristen Wiig, come on. And Kristen Wiig says, uh, I'm not going with you. And she's like, dummy, you were never invited. I need you to leave the room so I can lock <laughs> it. Um, I don't think it's dummy. It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's a very funny moment. Uh, the other, but yeah, the other funny part, and then we'll move on that I, that I loved a great Chris Hemsworth, uh, thing when he answers the phone, it's it's before they go to the theater when there's the ghost mm-hmm. in the theater. Um, he answers the phone, takes on the information, hangs up and then immediately starts asking them about his headshots. <laughs> yes. And then they're like, what was his name? Kevin? Is yeah, it sounds Kevin? right. Like Kevin, who was on the phone? And it was like, Oh, it's the such and such theater. Uh, there's a goat on the loose. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's there, there is funny stuff in there. And all it does is frustrate you, uh, frustrate me when you realize how funny it could have been yeah. and how many funny people are there. Paul oh, Feig crazy. with yeah. Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig has 
done wonders. And yeah, it's yeah. And you've, you've got all sorts of, uh, yeah. I mean, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon, oh, they're all, they're all funny. I mentioned Andy Garcia, Cecily, uh, what's her name from Saturday Night Live? Cecily something, uh, uh is, is, she's like the mayor's assistant. Right. Yes. Um, I don't remember. Her name. Um, it's a, it's a surprisingly large part. She's in a, a bunch. Yeah. Uh, you've got Matt Walsh and yeah. Michael K. Williams <laughs> in there. It would completely wasted. Yeah. I did laugh a lot at the, the, the Dean, of Melissa McCarthy's uh, college oh, who yeah. just is really immature and just yeah. like finds different ways to flip them off. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, it's a silly little moment, but I, and yeah. it's one of those rare I can't moments. I that actor's name. It's one of those rare moments when, uh, <laughs> when uh, you can tell he's improvising uh-huh. And I'm okay with all of it. I think it's because yeah. it's, it's still only about a minute long and then they leave him behind forever. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and honestly, I, I did do a more than one lesson minisode about Ghostbusters and about how, to the degree that it is a an SJW cause, it actually does that really well. I just wish it were funnier. Um, so feel free to go listen to that because I'm actually I think it actually does explore some things in a really interesting way. But uh, I think it either leads with that or it leads with plot and ultimately just winds up being a, a, a huge swing and a miss considering everybody that was involved. Um, All okay. right, what's next for you? Next for me is, uh, I will say, Fences. I oh, saw I Fences. I saw this one. Um, and I really liked it. I don't think I, I would say I loved it. Obviously, there are a number of performances that I love in it. Um, and I... I have such respect for Denzel Washington as an actor and his willingness to be unlikable. Now, he's a very specific type of of unlikable in Training Day in the sense that he's not even that unlikable. He's a villain that you love to hate. Right, yeah. As opposed to something like uh, uh, Flight and then Fences where he's very charis- his character is very charismatic, but he is kind of a monster in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, I'll definitely be doing a more than one lesson about fences with the companion film, the great Santini, like just this oh. domineering father uh, who just is, is ultimately he has love for other people, but it's not as much as his con- maybe not his love for himself, but his consider his prior, mm-hmm. his prioritization, self concern, self regard, uh, and that's the thing. And so the idea that Denzel Washington can commit so fully to the scene in which he tells his wife that he's been having an affair with this other woman, she's pregnant. And then his wife says, okay, well that's terrible. Are you going to end it? And he says, no. And then acts as though this is a thing he's entitled to not in defiance of his wife. He still loves her, mm-hmm. but just that he can convince himself so fully that he's not somehow not being selfish or that it's okay to be selfish in this regard, despite his wife who he loves pleading to him not to be this way. It's, it's astonishing that he is able to be that convincingly. Uh, and then obviously Viola Davis does a a marvelous job as well. It's just kind of, she's obviously the heart of the film and obviously a co lead. Uh, (laughs) and, and I say that, you know, the BPs, we nominated her for supporting. 
there, there was a lot. She was submitted in lead. She was submitted in supporting. Whichever one got more points was what I was going to go with as I was compiling them. She got like three more points in supporting, so I went with that. Um, oh, so the points didn't count as you tallied them together? No, no, no. I tallied them separately. Oh, okay. Um, and so there was so, a chance that she could have ended up in neither because people split the vote. Uh, yeah, there was the chance, but because enough people. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Almost everybody submitted her somewhere. Um, and, I uh, I did. yeah, I think, I, I think I did. And I think, I think I did for lead now that I think about it, but, um, yeah, it's so it's, and then, uh, Michael T. Williamson is great. Steven Henderson is marvelous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael T. Williamson is really great because that's, and I think I said that when we talked about fences in the movie journal, when I saw it, um, that's a tricky role because he's Boy. playing someone who is, who, uh, brain damaged from, from the war. Yeah. Um, and that's, just traditionally that can go way wrong. Uh, and it he could, really does it. It could be easy to make that character a little bit precious mm-hmm. and kind of adorable. And I think from the, I think from the writing, uh, and I've not seen the play and I know that August Wilson adapted his own play, but, uh, having the character show up at inopportune times goes a long way to make him not adorable. But he's like, Oh, we're trying to, ad- ad- we, the audience and the characters are trying to get through, you know, get to a point and now we have to deal with this guy and the idea of him being a nuisance actually uh is a is a good idea on the writer's part um he's still you know we still have affection for this character and tremendous sympathy for this character but stuff like that it makes this a a very well written script um and i and and i liked it i don't think i would ever consider denzel washington to be a masterful filmmaker but he directs in such a way as to make me mostly forget that it's a play Mostly, <laughs> you know, so. I, yeah, I don't know about that, but I don't know. I don't know that I ever forgot that it's a play, but I also don't know that it's necessarily a demerit. For yeah, that's true. Um, I, but on. although I do, I do like the, the cinematographer is, um, uh, I forget her name. She's, she's Danish. It's like Sh- Charlotte Bruce Christensen or something. Mm. But, uh, yeah, she's, she's great. And she shot, um, she did something else this year, um, but uh, a couple years ago she did Far From the Madding Crowd, which is uh, oh, right. not a great movie, but absolutely beautiful. Far From the Maddening Crowd, absolutely. Speaking Moving on. Maddening, uh, indeed. <laughs> so what's next for you? I watched a, a documentary called Trapped, and this is one that um, uh, is just, you know, designed to, to piss me off. Um, it's um, the second um, good uh 2016 abortion documentary the other one being abortion stories women tell um this one is um whereas abortion stories women tell focused on the human element and this one does too but this one focuses more is more on is more on the more on the power it's about the states that have um what are uh referred to as trap laws which are laws that aren't that that don't outlaw abortion, but without ever saying that's what they're doing, are specifically designed to micro-target um, uh, r- rules that affect abortion clinics mm-hmm. to make it essentially impossible for them. Uh, like the idea of a doctor um, having to have admitting privileges at a local a uh, hospital that's one that, that that comes up a lot and there's all oh, there's all sorts of things so this looks at the at the trap laws um not i mean it's i mean this is a movie with a an agenda but i would say it it falls short of being something that i would consider propaganda because i don't think it um lies or misrepresents uh i think when it does represent 
uh, or when it does relay the, the 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 laws, it does so, um, and the people who pass them and write them, it does so honestly. But mm-hmm. it also there's no there's no doubt about where the movie's coming from because yeah. most of it t- its time it spends with. Um, doctors and clinic uh doctors and nurses and clinic owners and managers mm-hmm. um who are trying to keep their uh, their i would say practices but some of these doctors are people who clearly are just doing this as a you know because they believe in it like mm-hmm. you know it's it it costs them money and it uh it inconveniences them incredibly what i have to because they have, because there are so few in, uh, abortion clinics left in some of these states because of these these trap laws, um, like the you know Texas, the amount of abortion clinics uh, shrank infinitesimally uh, almost as soon as these laws started being passed. Uh, because there's so few of them, the people have to, uh, the doctors who do them have to donate, you know, or to devote weeks of their life to traveling through the country and saying, okay, I'm going to be at this clinic on this day and i'm the doctor for this day and like uh, as many as people need uh, abortions i'm gonna uh fit them in that day um so it's i i i wonder about um how like i said it's designed to piss me off i i do wonder about how effective movies like this are to the pro-life contingent like could you actually change minds with this movie. And I think abortion stories women tell maybe could Mm -hmm. because it is, uh, because I think that, uh, anytime you feel a certain way about uh, a policy that affects human beings, the more you come to know those human beings, um, the more willing you are to see their side Mm -hmm. because just, and and I think abortion stories women tell does a better job of the humanity, uh, portion of it. Um, but this one, I think the most effective argument that it makes, and I'm glad that I'm talking to you, uh, a conservative, about this, is um, h- how do conservatives justify, conservatives who believe in smaller government and le- fewer regulations, justify these incredibly far-reaching regulations? That's what they are. Mm-hmm. They're regulations. Yes. Um, uh, uh, how is this a conservative value in that sense does the what they perceive to be a moral imperative outweigh that well before you and i were recording we were talking about uh, politics and i believe you said a few times in a few different ways that you are willing to uh deal with uh a number of means uh as long as you get uh, the ends that you would like now not moral but i was taught uh i I don't want to get into our off mic discussion. It was a great discussion. I just don't want to hash it, but I'm trying to remember what you're talking about that fits this bill. Uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, how far into the episode are we? <laughs> We're 42 minutes. In. Ah, shit. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, okay, I don't want to, because what, we had a big it's, uh, it's conversation um, before. And I'm not trying to say recorded. it as a, as a weapon, but like everybody, everybody has something that legislatively, um, and maybe even rhetorically that they would be okay with, uh, you know, I would be okay with such and such a thing happening if it ultimately resulted in this over here. Okay. Um, and so, you know, while, uh, while conservatives and libertarians especially are very anti-regulation, 
you know, the way that I, and, and yes, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, anti-abortion. One would say pro-life, but, uh, as, as quick to, as people are quick to say, it's like, you can't be, uh, pro-life. You can't consider yourself pro-life unless you're all these other programs, uh, like, uh, being like super pro, like just pouring money into education and child, uh, uh, healthcare and stuff, which to which I say, okay, I'm fine with all of that. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the other thing is if you because I'm you know to uh, a million people in my position have made this uh, this argument, but uh, yeah, I'd love for there to be fewer abortions too. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to do that, I think we need um, yeah uh, earlier and more in depth sex education, mm-hmm. and we need uh, more access to birth control and i just uh, and i i guess i don't see i just don't see where the uh, i i i don't see the ideological uh, opposition to all of that but that's uh, because I, I or i'm speculating that's because the one thing because i'm you know and a non-believer you're mm-hmm. a christian but there's a lot of things that i either agree with or have no problem with within the Christian faith. But whenever on any, in any way Mm -hmm. it gets around to sex, it's the, it's the part of Christianity that always flabbergasts me. Like I just don't understand the Christian position on sex. And I think it, that's, uh, we could have fewer abortions if, if, if Christian Republicans would be more okay with people being on having, available birth control, having access to condoms for free at schools, uh, I think, and having access to healthcare from the age of, or not healthcare, um, sex education from the age of like eight or nine, like people need, just need to get over these hangups that I can't wrap my head around. Uh, and it would not only would it lead to fewer abortions, it would be less of a strain on the healthcare system overall. It would also would also be, I, I think it would be, uh, fiscally, uh, more, uh, conservative. Hmm. That part I'm not sure about, but, uh, yeah, I, a thing that I will often say, uh, I've stopped saying it on Facebook cause, uh, I think I'm, I think I've lost hair, uh, from being so stressed out all the time. Um, is that, uh, for my money, the role of government is in, in regards to taking care of people as you take care of people that can't take care of themselves. So that's children, the disabled, uh, and to a certain extent, the elderly. Um, and I say to a certain extent, because, I don't mean to imply that uh, that we take care of some and not others, simply that some elderly people would probably not enjoy being referred to as they can't take care of oh, themselves. Oh, sure, sure. That's all I mean. Yeah. Um, and so I'm all for uh, providing free health care to children. Um, I'd say below 18. Um, and... And I'm fine with, I, basically I'm fine with anything that, that is, that allows a, a kid to be healthy and taken care of because the kid cannot help the, the situation which he or she was born into. Uh, and so to that degree, I'm fine with, with the, the state, uh, uh, you know, state or, or federal government, uh, helping out. Um, which which puts me maybe at odds with uh, some of my fellow conservatives, but to me, I feel like that is not uh, that is not an unconservative idea. Um, that said, I will say that 
the way most that I'm speaking for me and the people that I know and the people that I know, uh, I would say are not uh, stand, normal Republicans, or at least uh, they don't seem to fit in with the larger uh, the larger consensus of Republicans. But the way I put it is the the reason that uh, Republicans are okay with this type of legislation uh, and this type of uh, these types of regulations, though I'm not, I may not like the ones that you're talking about, just because the the hoops that people are required to jump through, it seems very, for lack of a better term, manipulative. Um, but anyway, is that uh, I think that's, that's a per- perfect. Good okay. for it. So the um, life, liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'd say that's the order. Life okay. first. Everybody should should be allowed to have life, and and you know uh, health uh, to the degree that uh, they are able to have it. Um, next is liberty, um, and then the pursuit of happiness. So like it's important for you to be able to pursue your own de- definition of happiness. However, if it steps on somebody else's liberty, if, if you are forcing someone else to do something so that you can be happy, then I feel like, okay, that's your pursuit of happiness is not so important so as to make somebody else less free. In the same way, freedom and liberty is remarkably important. Uh, but if your freedom to do something starts to hamper somebody else, somebody else's ability to live, then suddenly your liberty is not that important. The idea of, you know, me swinging my arm stops at your nose or whatever it is. I forget the phrase. Um, and so to that degree, nobody, everybody seems to view it's like, Oh, this is anti woman. It affects women. It affects women. That is unfortunate. And people often say, well, if it were men, okay, maybe, if it were men that had the babies, then maybe it wouldn't be an issue. I Who's to say? Yeah. But I think those are honestly, I think those are smoke screens. Um, what it ultimately it's if you want to believe that just like, oh, just uh, people that are anti-abortion hate women, even though like 48 percent of them are women. Um, no, it's not that it's ultimately that. And, and maybe some of them are. But it ultimately is like these kids who, yes, are not born yet. uh that they are people and they have the right to live uh, and that a woman's freedom. And it is unfortunate that these, that people are, are uh, incubated inside an entire sex uh, and not everybody. Uh, And so it affects them most of all. And so that is an unfortunate thing, but I do think that, uh, that, it is. It, I do think that it is a. Oh boy, jeez. Oh, I do think that it is a killing. Uh, so yeah, this is what it all comes down to: yeah. is that you believe that a fetus is a life at, to the same extent that the mother is a life, and I don't believe yes. that. I believe life begins when you're born. That's why you, you know. So you some, don't have your first birthday three months after you're born. You're born. You have your first birthday a year after you're born because sure. you've been alive for a year. Sure. It's I, I so I, I like I and but I, I understand that is yeah that is the kernel of the difference, um, and I do um, see what you're saying. I think you're maybe forgiving um, a lot of misogyny that is there in, in in the way that these arguments are carried out. But I do see what you're saying in that we're never going to make any progress on the abortion issue until we're both having the same argument. 
and we're and we're not having the same argument right because your side believes that a fetus is a life and my side doesn't right uh, and that's why it's so it's such an intransigent issue uh, and i would say because there's a uh, fundamentalness to that and i do think uh having just uh, well i'm getting ahead of myself but uh by and large i would say historically we should be careful anytime we say that this group is not people uh whether but they're just, not people a fetus is not a person so you're saying that literally okay let's say some let's say a kid is due on december 21st and uh-huh. then that is the let's say for all uh, argument for argument's sake that is the day he's born okay okay so on the 20th go and crush that skull and suck the brain out. Yeah. And I think, I don't understand how I think in the future we will be deeply ashamed of that attitude. How? Because if the kid, because if the mom like (laughs) had a, not a, not a miscarriage, that's a exactly the opposite. If, if she went into like a premature labor or something like that, or like that kid, especially in, in late term abortion, like uh, third trimester, like, that kid is for lack of a better term. I know the term is, it's, it is the term. It's not lack of a better term viable. Like that is a kid that can live on its own. And I mean, I know somebody whose daughter was born two months premature and yeah, she needed a lot of help, but that is a, a, a separate person. And and there are moments it's when it's not a separate person until it's not about viability. It's not a separate person until it is existing outside of the mother. That's so it's not a separate person. It's literally not a separate person. But, and that's the thing is there, but there are also moments when like a, uh, this, uh, it has a, a a heartbeat that is separate from hers. It can experience pain that she is not experiencing. Uh, it, it has a separate set of experiences, but viability and potential plus two fifty will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It doesn't mean anything. If I, to you. If you give me a check for a million dollars, right? All right. Until I deposit that in my account, I'm not a millionaire. I can't go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm not a millionaire. Okay. It's not until it's in my account and I can actually use it that I'm a millionaire. It's it's odd that I'm thinking of Brewster's millions at this moment because (laughs) uh, we've spent way too long on this. It occurs to me. I'm sorry. Um, but I honestly feel that, and, and, honest, and, and I try not to bring my, my Christian beliefs into this because I actually don't think that that is, I don't think that's why I, why I think this. Uh, it's usually like the third or fourth thing that I think about. Um, I think about viability. I think about the idea that it is, it has a unique genetic code, uh, that it has a heartbeat, that it has feeling on its own, and that, that, you know, the, the mother is simply obviously nourishing it. And thus it is a, an extension of her. Uh, but that ultimate, uh, that certainly in the last trimester, I think it, uh, she is housing the kid. If we could, if, if it was possible, honestly, to remove the kid and like, just keep state it, it. Just state it, you know, matri- yeah. matrix style. Well, maybe not matrix style, but, uh, then I think I'd be, I think that's a fantastic uh, solution. I think I would be love working that. toward it. Um, and so, and, <laughs> and by the way, and I, and I, I hate 
saying stuff like in the future, I think we will be ashamed of this because there's no guarantee. That's me saying, you know, right side of history. And I hate that horse shit. Uh, and so I, I, I don't mean to, so I'm sorry that I, that I put it in that, in those terms, nobody can predict the future, least of all me. Um, I'm not least of all, I'm not an idiot. I'm capable of abstract thought. And so, and I'm sure that I've pissed off a lot of our listeners, but you know what? It would, be really, it would be really great if you did too. I, I don't, <laughs> sure I, I don't have. like the idea that I'm the only fucking person saying this shit. Uh, you know, and I'm sorry for getting angry, but I will also say that if there were a pro-life documentary would, I'm not going to say you, but let's say people of your, uh, philosophy, would they view it as anything other than propaganda? Like you actually said that this might be seen as propaganda. It definitely has an agenda. If there were a pro-life documentary, well, see now, I mean, this is, you can't predict history and you can't predict how people react to the, to the documentary until it exists. It's, it's, it's not even a viable documentary at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> you're enough. just making, you're, 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 you're making it up. Um, I mean, people, people bring what they, what they're going to bring. Um, and I said that this movie, and even though I don't think of it as propaganda, I think of it as an argument. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it would, I said, I don't think this movie is going to have a great deal of effect. Right. Um, uh, if pro-life people watch it. Whereas, as I said before, abortion stories, women tell might. Okay. Um, because it gets to what I'm talking about. Um, it gets to the thing that makes progress on all sorts of issues. Like, you know, gay rights and, and whatnot, because once you, the more gay people, you know, the more you're likely to support the right to, to equality. Um, and so I feel like that's the tack that abortion stories women tell, um, uh, takes. And I think that's why it's a, a better movie, but this one did bring up some policy decisions. And it's unfortunate we had to get into the, but you know, what? it's not unfortunate. I'm glad that we got into the rudiments of the, disagreement over abortion because I, uh, again, I do think there's a lot of misogynist rhetoric, but I do think I agree with you. And I've made this point to, um, my liberal friends who are, uh, it fell on deaf ears, unfortunately, but I made this point before that the, that the, the misogyny and the sexism is, um, uh, a, a byproduct or, um, uh, an, uh, ancillary part of the real, issue which is the disagreement over whether or not a fetus is a life yes that is that's what it all comes down to yeah and it's and along those same lines and i'm while i think the act is murder i don't think i would ever refer to you or anybody that's pro-abortion as a baby killer because no that's for vietnam soldiers uh, (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Finally, we can agree on something. Um, okay, well, sorry, everybody. Uh, I guess we can talk about another movie now. Um, ugh, man, uh, I love our uh, podcast so much. Uh, really? I'm exhausted by it, and I assume that most people are, too. Um, nope. Nope, uh, people love it. Okay, what's next? I, th- I think you made your point well. I think I'm, I think I could use a nap to be honest with you, <laughs> but we've got so far to go and it just, and honestly, it, the nature of that, it feels like, well, how can I even, how can we even get back into movies at that point? What am I going to do? Talk about fucking 10 Cloverfield Lane. Is that what you watched? Yes. You've already seen it. <laughs> I know it's, right. it's a rewatch. Okay. Um, all right. I'll talk about that then. I don't talk about most of my rewatches only if it's, Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I talk about all my rewatches. Only if it's uh, if I have something to say. Okay. Uh, well, I don't have much to say except that th- this movie is marvelous. It's yeah, I like it a lot. Like I can't, 
I cannot get over. And by the way, this in this coming full on episode, uh, we will be talking about, uh, I will be talking about 10 Cloverfield lane again, because it is so self-assured. Like it is just, it's, I think it's totally consistent. I think everything that you are meant to feel, you do feel, uh, as far as how you relate to these characters. And I think most especially how you relate to John Goodman's character, you see him first with a great deal of suspicion as you should. Uh, and then you view him as a monster as you should, but then you start to realize like, Oh, wait a minute, he might be right. Uh, and then him, and then he is right. And just the fact of him being right, suddenly he doesn't seem quite so monstrous. And then you come, and then you come to realize that him being right does not mean he's not a monster. And so there's just all of this stuff happening and you are right in the palm of uh, the director Dan Trachtenberg's hand like he he has you whether it be the use uh, to my in my view the use of sound is marvelous the art direction is marvelous you believe or at least I believe everything that I am seeing uh, and so I, I just I I really love the movie it's in in reassessing it I might it might find its way back into my top 10 of the year oh wow um I hope it's number 10, so it's 10, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Sure, sure. Um, Which is a whole different address, and there, there's different <laughs> things happening down the street. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, uh, I watched a, a terrific little movie called Spa Night um, that is a, um, it's a Korean-American movie um, that takes place here in Los Angeles in Korea, in Koreatown. Um, and I, what I like about it is that it would, if you didn't know anything about that going in, it would take you maybe at least like 10 minutes into the movie to realize you were in America because mm-hmm. it takes place entirely in a Korean American community. Oh, okay. Um, in a specific in, city, uh, in here in Los Angeles okay. in, in, in Koreatown. Um, and there is, I guess there is a clue in like the second scene where the son answers his mother's question in English, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, but then they go back to speaking in Korean. Uh, but, uh, basically it's, um, uh, a character who is a, uh, I, I guess he's probably supposed to be about 19 or 20. He's a, um, he's college age, but he's not in college and he's the, you know, first generation son of Korean, uh, immigrants. Um, and it's, it's a movie that I think it equates the, uh, immigrant experience and the, um, closeted homosexual experience because mm-hmm. he's also, um, he's also gay, but I wouldn't call it a gay movie. Like that's a, only a part of, okay. Uh, Cause I read a lot of reviews that are like referring to it as like, uh, a, a, a queer movie, which is a, a term that you can use when you're talking about politics. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I always feel, as really, a, I feel really weird saying it, but it is, uh, that's the name for the, uh, political spectrum or not spectrum. You got to say the whole thing. You got to say like every letter. If you say like quay, like that's, (laughs) that's when people like, Oh, okay. That's not the, um, uh, and, um, but, but, uh, so this is a, a character you see when, you're you're made to realize and this is something that i think is pretty um well assumed or understood but when when uh, a lot of times when immigrants come here it's for uh it's because they want their next generation Mm -hmm. to have the opportunities they didn't have and so when you see this kid who didn't who's who didn't get good grades he's not in college he's just working at their at the restaurant that they own. Meanwhile, the other kids he went to, to, to church and school with, um, 
are off at college mm-hmm. um, and you feel the weight of him not being what he's expected to be or what would right. make his parents happy. Um, and that's directly equated to the fact that he's also closeted. Um, and you know, he's is the implication is his parents, um, would be, wouldn't be any happier with him being gay than they are with him. Um, not being, uh, um, more successful than he is. Uh, it's a really interesting movie. It's a very like, um, I mean, it's an art movie to be sure in the sense that, um, almost nothing, really happens in the movie at all. all right. It's, it's a, it's a little over 90 Sounds minutes. Sounds like a mumblecore movie. Is what uh, you're I get, but it's, it, it is beautifully uh, composed. Um, yeah, but it is a movie that is very, uh, deliberately paced and not much actually happens. And there are long sections of the movie, um, where no one is talking and he's just, cause he takes a, a job, a night job, uh, cause he has to make more money for, uh, for his family. He takes a night, night job at a, at a spa, uh, a, in, in Koreatown um, that's open 24 hours in it. So there's long sections of him just like mopping the floor and looking at the other men who were using the spa uh-huh. in the middle of the night. Uh, it's, it's a really cool movie. Uh, director's name is Andrew on. Um, and I look forward to more from him. All right. Uh, next up, let's see. I will talk about split. The M night Shyamalan film. Okay. What happens at the end? <laughs> it's, do you know? Uh, no, but I'm sure I'll figure out before I see it because I probably won't see it. Uh, it's, I'll say this. The, uh, the twist uh-huh. is not one that you see coming. Okay. It's this, it's I a think twist. I, I had, uh, a facet of it spoiled for me, but I still don't understand what happens, but there's something okay. that I won't say that I know about it. Okay. So, the twi- well, okay, so the twist in Unbreakable is actually larger than simply uh, Samuel Jackson did this thing. Uh-huh. The twist is in Unbreakable is that like this is a different genre than what we thought. Oh, okay. We thought it was, you know, a, a conventional thriller, but in fact, we are watching a superhero origin story and we didn't even know. That is what Split is like. Its twist is oh, I'm watching this type of story instead huh. of this one. So that is uh, that is what's interesting about the twist. And it doesn't feel necessarily forced, but it's, I don't know, it, it's interesting. Um, and it's complete schlock. One could even say it's a little bit trashy. Uh, hmm. In fact, I will say it is trashy. But it is. Listen, I don't think of M Night Shyamalan as a trashy nor filmmaker. Do, nor do I. But you, uh, you'll see. Um, oh, I'm not going to see it. Okay. Well, it's. It, I'd say it's worth seeing. Um, I, I when I first saw that trailer, I thought like, oh, poor James McAvoy. Come on. Like, <laughs> but he really does commit to uh, to the multiple characters he's playing. And Shyamalan is a solid enough filmmaker that there are moments when. Uh, when James McAvoy will be talking to the, the, the girls that he's holding captive, he'll be talking to them as one character and uh, one personality. And you kind of have this moment of like, Oh my gosh, I hope uh, like they should stop talking. This other guy's going to walk in. And you're like, well, no, he's not going to walk in. He's here now, but he's not here. Like it does feel as though there are in fact four people walking around. 
Hmm. And that at any moment one could appear in the doorway, but he's not going to appear in the doorway because he's here already. Um, and oh, it's hard, it's hard to say exactly how M night Shyamalan does that. It's probably a function of the performance and just the way the script is laid out and just Shaman Shyamalan's uh, ability to cut things in a way for like maximum suspense so that you're constantly worried that someone's going to overhear something. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there, and there's even moments when you see James McAvoy, he is off as one personality doing something completely outside of the building mm. where he's holding these, these girls. And so you see him doing that and you see them trying to do this thing, trying to escape. And you think like, oh my gosh, uh, someone's it's like this character over here is, he's going to overhear him. And you think like, no, he's not going to overhear them. <laughs> He is miles away. Right. And the fact that you forget that is actually uh, a testament to his ability as a director. Yeah, we'll watch this movie. That sounds cool. It's a film that is worth seeing, I would say. Okay. It is trashy and it is pure schlock. Uh, All right. Um, I saw... This one won't get us into quite as much of an argument, but uh, another uh, (sighs) issue documentary. All right. Um, uh, No, I think... I I feel like you might be more uh, with me on this. One of of my pet causes is... um, uh, penal system reform and criminal oh, justice right. yeah, reform. Okay. Uh, and I saw a movie called they call us monsters, which is specifically about juveniles, um, tried and convicted as adults for Ow. violent crimes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so it's, there's, uh, three, three boys, three teenage boys, um, in the movie. And the, the premise is, uh, there was a, uh, a, a program, uh, a screenwriter, donated his time to doing like 10 weeks of of screenwriting classes with these, with these three kids who volunteered for it. And together over the course of the 10 weeks, they are going to write a short film and then he's going to go and have the film made. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the premise, but really it looks into, uh, it's, it's a look at the fact that these are without being, um, uh, patronizing about it. Mm -hmm. Like it, it recognizes that these are not normal kids in the way that you and I experienced kids who grew up sure. with these kids. Like the, uh, and also doesn't shy away from the fact that they've uh, done bad things. And I mean, in at least one case, like at least one of them is uh, almost certainly a, is guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. Um, we we don't know because they because they're awaiting trial when they tell stories. They have they, they sort of dance around like telling stories like a friend of mine did this or I heard this happen right. to someone but like you get the impression they're talking about themselves so there's um, there is one kid who is almost certainly um, uh, a, a murderer and one kid who is maybe uh, an attempted murderer or maybe was in the car with someone who shot uh, and and paralyzed a girl we we never find out for sure if he yeah. was. Um, uh, um, pulling the trigger, but so it, it, it doesn't, it's not condescending or patronizing, which is good, but it also recognizes that these are, uh, are, are kids and, um, they have, they're not done becoming people yet. And so there's still hope for them. Yeah. I, I really don't like the idea. I remember the very first time I heard the idea of, of a kid being tried as an adult. And I remember thinking like, but he's not right. No matter how I, what he could have done, he could be a hundred percent guilty, um, and definitely deserves uh, to be you know punished or to the degree that that's the point of prison. Um, 
but definitely deserves some consequence, some legal consequences for what he did. Um, and his, his action, I guess, you know, the action of murder, even a really heinous murder. Yes, I guess that's an adult action, but it's not an adult. And it, along those lines, I would say, as strange as it, is, as it might be to connect these dots, the idea of like statutory rape, where again, not like a forceful physical rape, but the idea of like, oh, a 19 year old has sex with a 17 year old or something like that. And it's just like, that's always against, that's always against law. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing in favor of statutory, (laughs) but, um, but I'm saying that like in that instance, like we, we have this clear cutoff line that if you're under 18, you are a child, right? You know, if you're, if you're a victim or something like that, Never mind if the, if the 17 year old feels like she wasn't raped or anything like that, this is a thing she wanted to do. And the 19 year old said like, yes, but she seems very old or whatever it is. And no, legally 18, you're a kid. 18 and below, you're a kid. Right. Oh, unless, of course, you you do this terrible crime, which, again, is terrible and, and consequences are, are required. But the idea of trying a person as a, an adult never really made sense to me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all uh, I'm completely against it. Um, and yeah, you, the, there is some footage of of uh, um, like state legislators who are very in, in favor of, of this saying some things that I think are pretty awful, like one. And this is in the trailer uh, as well, if you look up the trailer for the movie. But one describes the kids as mini Charles Mansons, which I think is uh, not <laughs> it's just an all, uh, not a very sensitive thing to, to say uh, yeah. for a number of reasons, actually. Um, but uh, what I'll say before we move on about they call, me, they call Us Monsters is that everything we're talking about here is very heavy. The movie actually has a lot of the humanity of these characters and is Mm -hmm. surprisingly fun and funny. Like these kids, especially this one kid, uh, Jared, the one who may or may not, um, have paralyzed the girl or may have just been in the car with the, with the shooter. We we don't know. Um, is like, he's like the camera loves him and he's like cocksure and, uh, um, and he's pretty funny. And, um, there are are such of time where you're just like, you're just watching a class. This could be a documentary, except for the fact that they're wearing the like beige jumpsuits and there are guards standing at the door. This could be a documentary about any class and it's mm-hmm. just like kids fucking around, um, and developing this sort of fraternity with one another. Um, there's a lot of heart and humanity in it and it's not as heavy a watch as it sounds like it is. Um, but it gets across what it, what it needs to. Okay. It's a good movie. All right. So next for me is, all right, so I'm I'm going to start getting into uh, movies that I've watched in class, specifically my film history class. I watched the Ernst Lubitsch film Trouble in Paradise. Have you seen it? I've not seen it. No. It is unsurprisingly marvelous. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. I've only it's only my third Lubitsch film. I saw Design for Living. I saw it to be or not to be and now trouble in paradise. And now I definitely understand when people talk about the Lubitsch touch, I get it now. It is, it's very, it's, it's in some ways light as a feather, Mm -hmm. but there's still emotional weight to what the characters are doing. And this one definitely seems lighter than, you know, to be or not to be, which deals with, you know, the Nazis and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, because this is about, uh, con men and con women and, and, uh, and it's fun to just watch them lie to each other and pick each other's pockets and stuff like that. Um, and it's done in a very 
wry and winking type of way. But as these characters uh, begin to forget that it is a con and they start to actually care about each mm-hmm. other, lo and behold, you actually start to care about people's feelings and, and you wind up being the same situation as uh, the primarily the con man where this all started out as a fun game, but now people are actually getting hurt and how much does he care about it? And how much do we care about it? We came into this to be entertained and now here we are caring about people. That wasn't part of the plan, but that actually makes it more interesting and it makes it, and we're, we're now being, we're now more invested just as the con man is invested in it. And so, uh, so along those lines, it's, it is delightful. And, uh, there's some nice farcical elements, uh, involving doors, uh, you know, where, uh, some All the best like, farces involve doors. No question about it. And so, you know, there are these, there's like four or five doors all in a row and they all go to different offices. And so somebody, you know, a, a, a butler or a secretary will like knock on one door expecting, you know, this guy to pop his head out and he actually pops his head out of the door that belongs to this woman, which we all know means he and that woman just had sex. Uh-huh. And so then later on they knock on this door and he comes out a third door or something like that. It's, it's ridiculous and delightful. And, uh, yeah, I can't uh, recommend it highly enough. It was, it was, uh, marvelous. Okay. Uh, I watched a, a, doc, a third documentary. Man, uh, oh man. A lot of, lots of documentaries. Um, this, and this isn't even my last one. Um, uh, this is one I was really looking forward to. Um, and I didn't hate it, but people were talking about it like it was mind blowing. Uh, I watched tickled. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's really just like when it was over, I felt like JK Simmons at the end of burn after reading because I was like, <laughs> I was like, that, that was something that was crazy, yeah. but I have no idea what I like was supposed to take away from yeah. it. It's just like, but I also can't blame them for making the movie. They stumbled across this crazy story, yeah. which I don't know uh, if uh, what you know or what the listeners remember if they've if they've heard about the movie or seen it. But um, basically, this this New Zealand journalist who does like wacky human interest stories finds um, uh, a video on Facebook page for uh, competitive endurance tickling as like a sport, and he's like, "That's interesting. I'll look into this." So he sends an email to. Jane O'Brien media, the company that, uh, runs the, the, these competitions, um, just inquiring about it. And if he could do a story and what he gets back is full of vile homophobic vitriol, just like this awful, like, like, whoa, like there is no call for, <laughs> for this. And so of course that intrigues him more and yeah. he keeps following this down the rabbit hole. And it's just this crazy thing of these people who get, who agree because they're offered ridiculous gifts and sums of money um, to do these videos of them tickling and being tickled. And it's all like fit young men. Um, And then sooner or later, whenever any one of them wants to stop doing the videos and tries to say like, I think I'm done. They are attacked. Their images are put online. They're, you know, doxxed and harassed. And um, like, there's one guy I didn't know went that far. Oh, listen, let me tell you one story. Okay. There's a guy, who uh, was who worked as essentially casting for Jane O'Brien Media, um, or I think maybe before it was called that because the uh, you find out the the Jane O'Brien and then this person Terry something or uh, worked anyway that's not important it worked as casting mm-hmm. and then eventually he decided to get out of it or he wasn't he he had um, a disagreement with some of the stuff being made public that these 
performers, these ticklers or whatever, or ticklees had not agreed to be made public. And so he left and, um, Jane O'Brien media harassed him to the point. This is an actual thing that happened would send. So this guy had a brother who died young. Mm hmm. Jane O'Brien Media would send his parents a birthday card for his dead brother's birthday. <gasps> what? Yeah. What is going on with you. this? this yeah, the, uh, that's what I'm saying. They had to make the movie. It's too crazy a story not to yeah, make, yeah. but it also is kind of, uh, once it's over, it does just have the feel of like, it's a crazy story I heard once. Yeah, it's ultimately just a, movie dedicated to can you believe this shit <laughs> yeah yeah and, and, I, and i've seen people interpret it as being about like um the 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 power of like anonymous online bullying and stuff like that sure and i guess like it it, it is true that if it weren't for the internet this um jane o'brien media couldn't couldn't do this the way that they do because we never like mm -hmm. you don't know who jane o'brien is or if that's even a real person or whatever um uh, and so that is an element to it, but I, I, I think it's giving the movie too much credit to say that it's actually exploring that. It really is just like a crazy story. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I watched a film. This is not for class. Uh, this is for a thing that I forgot I had to write a review of, uh, of and still haven't <laughs> called heart of a dog. Oh, right. Remember yeah, that one? Laurie Anderson. Yeah. Uh, hard to say if it's a documentary. It no, isn't like, really. I like those kind of movies. Uh, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it. A dogumentary? Would you call it that? Can we just end the episode now? Because obviously, you know what? The most offensive thing you said today is what you just said. Uh, I guess you'd call it like, uh, like almost not a video essay, but like a video, just video art. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. Uh, I've heard it referred to as a tone poem, which is a term I've only heard once or twice. And I don't think I've ever liked it. Um, I like that term. It fits. It yeah. definitely fits this one. Um, and yeah, tone poem is like je ne sais quoi. Sure. Like, there <laughs> you go. It is what you use when you literally don't yeah. know what. Um, so, and it's, it's hard to even explain, but yeah, Laurie Anderson tells this story, but it's not, it's not a story. Maybe this is why I've ha I'm having a hard time writing about it is cause I don't even know where to start. I've been thinking about it. Um, it is ostensibly about her dog um, and how much she loved her dog. Um, and it tried to, and sort of saw the world through her dog's eyes. And then her dog like got very sick, but still was around for a while. Um, and, and so, but it also winds up being about nine 11 and it winds wow. up being about the death of her mother as well. And just living, essentially living in a world where death is in It's a thing that exists. Mm -hmm. And this idea of how do you walk around you know, contemplating anything except death, but it's not a depressing film by any stretch. And it's not even a fatalistic or even an existentialist film, maybe existentialist a little bit, but like it's, it, it more just is it, the film will, will often veer off into talking about this random thing over here, but it will always come back to death. And so I do definitely think that it's, it's something that is probably mostly about her mom's death, 
But by talking about, you know, her dog and talking about, again, 9-11 and the effect that it had on mm-hmm. people, uh, it, it just like death either on, on a personal level or on a national level, level or a global level. And the idea that you just, you can never see, you, you never really see it coming. Sometimes you do, you know, if somebody is, is very sick or something like that. But, but even the day that, that that person dies, like, it's a thing that you always, even if they're very sick, I know somebody who a few years ago had cancer and it was very clear to all of us that he was not going to be around very long. But, you know, even if that person's sick for several months, that becomes the new normal. Mm-hmm. And you're just used to that person being around, but sick. And then he died. And it's like, okay. Uh, and it just seemed abrupt because yesterday he was here and now he's not. And, that's always the case. No matter how sick the person is, no matter how well the person is, no matter how they die, if they're murdered, if they died of, uh, of you know, a heart attack or something like that, um, they were here. Now they're not. And so the film seems to be dealing with that, but in a, in a way that is just very, very, uh, well, poetic, I would say. And it's just a, it's a difficult movie to get your hands around, but it's a film that, uh, as one would expect from a tone poem, it's a film that just sort of needs to be more experienced than actually talked about. Um, you know, it's something that I'd, I'd much rather you and I sit down and watch together than talk about it right now. But it's, it, I can see why Criterion latched onto it. Um, it's a film that I think people would, would, would like, um, unless, unless you're somebody who insists on a narrative or something like that. I think, I think most people would like it. Uh, they'll probably like it more than the next movie I saw, which is coming out this weekend. Uh, Peter Chelsom's the space between us. Yeah. Not Uh, getting good reviews. That one. Yeah. It it doesn't deserve them. It is real bad. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on it. It has like, it doesn't have, it has kind of an interesting premise, Mm -hmm. which is that a, um, a team of scientists go to colonize Mars. It's in the near future. Um, and, um, one of them, uh, upon, you know, launch doesn't know that she's pregnant, but, um, finds out a couple months into the journey and then ends up having the baby on Mars. Um, and then this, uh, kid is kept secret from mm-hmm. earth, except for people at NASA. Um, uh, Gary Oldman, um, plays the, the main big and BD Wong play the main, uh, NASA people. Uh, but he's, so he's living his entire life on Mars, but he has an internet connection. He's and he chats with this, uh, girl in Colorado. And then when he gets his chance to come to earth, he, uh, escapes NASA and goes to track her down to go find his biological father. That's, mm. that's the premise. Not a bad premise. Not a bad for premise. A story. The, the trailer looked interesting to me, but Peter Chelsea just, it's a bad screenplay. Um, it's a very bad screenplay where it's, it introduces all sorts of conflict that don't need to be there. It just mm. seems like a screenwriting one one sort of like, uh, cause like, um, Someone Gary, somewhere said up the stakes. And, <laughs> yeah. Gary Oldman yeah. and, um, Carla Gugino, uh, or Gugino. I never know how to say, say her name. Who's uh, also a former astronaut. They're the ones teaming up to go track down the kid and the girl when they're on the run. Uh, but then they keep fighting. Like, it does, like, why do we need them to be arguing right yeah. now? That's not, <laughs> uh, there's, there's plenty going on here, and it, but it's, and, it, and it's all sort of lame and, and contrived. And then, yeah, just bad dialogue. I'll give you two examples. Okay. Uh, there's one part where, um, uh, serious events lead Gary Oldman and Carla Gugino to think that the kid is in this barn that blows up. Mm-hmm. 
So for a second, they think he's just died. Yeah. And their reaction, both of them, is, oh, no. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's another part where uh, I don't want to you know, give too much away, but near the climax, Gary Oldman's character has to take control of a, um, you know, an aerial vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the pilot says, but it's against every regulation. <laughs> Uh, so that's the kind of screenplay we're dealing with. Um, moving on. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> that reminds me of one of my, of maybe my favorite family guy joke. Um, because that, that pilot just said it's against every regulation. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of my favorite family guy. You know, the one I'm going to say, no, I don't know. Okay. Where, uh, uh, Peter Griffin bursts into the cockpit of a, of a, of an airplane uh-huh. and the pilot whirls around and he goes, he goes, Hey, you're not a pilot. I know every pilot in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke. It is a good joke. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm laughing now at it. Uh, it's a well-structured joke. Okay. Uh, I saw Charlie Chaplin's the kid. I've never seen this one actually. Oh, it's, it's really great. And it is the essence of, of everything you know about Charlie Chaplin. It is, of course, there's some really nice physical comedy, but it is like dripping with pathos. Um, because it's, you know, he, he takes in this, this, uh, orphan child and raises it. And he's the, he's obviously the the little tramp. And so this kid is raised in uh, abject poverty, but he and, uh, he and the little tramp, like, uh, figure out clever and humorous ways to accomplish to put food on the table and that sort of thing. The kid, by the way, is played by Jackie Coogan, grandfather yep. of friend of the show, Keith Coogan. Yep. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and I, I liked it a lot, but I will say that, um, we also watched, uh, a few days later, uh, one week, the Buster Keaton short. And I'm, just generally very familiar with, uh, Her- excuse me, Harold Lloyd. And, you know, I, I, I do love city lights and I love the gold rush and I love modern times and the great dictator. I do. I, I, uh, Chaplin is, is a marvelous filmmaker, but, and I, and I'd say objectively, he's a better filmmaker than Harold Lloyd. I don't think he's better than, than Keaton, but Chaplin is definitely my least favorite of the three. Um, you know, most people would say they prefer for most people it's a debate between Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd is like not even in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think I personally prefer Lloyd the most. I think Keaton is probably the best, but, um, but yeah, there's just something about the way Chaplin incorporates his moments of, of sentiment and drama, uh, often melodrama into his comedy. It's just, it just shifts so jarringly from one to the other. Um, I think city lights is the one that does it the best. Um, and the kid is a good example of that. I mean, the moments that are dramatic are genuinely dramatic and, and, and heart wrenching. The moments that are funny are gen genuinely funny. He does both of them well, but I feel like he has, a, I feel like he just has a hard time, uh, uh, portraying them as being part of the same story or the same world. Um, and I know that, you know, people might come down hard on me for that. Cause you know, uh, Chaplin is, is a genius and indeed he is a genius in many ways, but I don't know. It's just for whatever reason, even though his movies are undeniably great, there's just something that keeps me from embracing him as much as I do Keaton and Lloyd. All right. Um, I watched a movie that I'd been uh, very intrigued uh, and meaning to get around to um, 
for for months now i watched tom tickver's a hologram for the king oh okay uh have you seen it i have not um it's definitely i'm, I'm a fan of tom tickver up to a point like a sort of uh i feel like i'm a fan of tom tickver like in theory okay like there's none of his movies there are no movies that i dislike of him but there's something about his his visual style which uh, this is for those who don't know the guy who made run little run and princess and the warrior and was um half of the cloud atlas um maybe a third uh well but in terms of number of like storylines shot sure they split it up okay um yeah and then perfume which i never saw Mm. i didn't know um, he did that yeah and then but so he has this uh this sort of wide angle primary primary color like um type of approach that makes everything look kind of a little bit storybookish, uh, which very much works for something like the princess and the warrior, but it's also kind of, it's like it's compelling and distancing at the same time. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I feel like it, so the movie is definitely worth, watching if you if you like him it, uh, it it's a movie that's basically uh it, it's kind of a a modern day like post uh 2008 financial crisis um uh waiting for godot fish out of water type of thing it's uh i don't know if you know the story tom hanks plays a character who is an executive for a company that uh is that develops new uh, uh information technologies and he's uh he and his team uh his technical team uh have gone to saudi arabia where the king is essentially building a new city from scratch Mm -hmm. and they want to be there on the ground floor to present this new um hologram communication uh thing but they go there and they're getting set up and there's you know so they're just in like the middle of the desert where there's like two buildings have been built and there's just a big tent um uh and the king is just he's the king. So he's going to show up when he shows up. So they're ready to go, but they basically just have to show up every day and wait around. And mm-hmm. one day, eventually the king will show up and they can make their presentation. So it's basically just about a, uh, you know, a middle-aged businessman waiting around in the desert. Um, uh, and then, you know, becoming friends with his, his driver and, uh, with another, uh, a uh, I want to say like a Danish woman who works in one of the other buildings. Like, so there's a cast of characters that come uh, in and out, but um, yeah, mostly it's just Tom Hanks playing a character who's sort of reflecting on his life. Um, Sounds kind of great. I and, feel and, like and, I would and, like it a lot. And it is, but I, I, I do feel like, like Tom Hanks, apparently the time it's a playtone production. Tom Hanks, it's based on a novel by Dave Eggers and Tom Hanks apparently loved the novel and optioned it and wanted to make it. And I, and obviously he had worked with Tom Jake there on cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if I think the, the resulting film is interesting, but I do feel like Tom Hanks and Tom Tickfair are not necessarily on the same page as to the movie they're making. Mm. Uh, you know, I think, um, um, Tom Tickver is more into the sort of alienation of the guys, uh, of the characters, um, setting and Tom Hanks is into the more sort of conventional story of personal growth and what he learns about himself. Right. Uh, and the performance is great. So it works. Um, I mean, Tom Hanks has like never been bad in a movie ever. Um, uh, I don't know. I never saw bachelor party. Um, but it's actually uh, his best performance. <laughs> Um, 
it's so it's, it's more of a fascinating curiosity of a movie than it is a you know successful uh work of art i think but um i'm glad i watched it i've, I've often found that uh that when maybe not maybe not an actor now that i think about it but often like when a writer and director are very are notably different in their sensibilities i feel like it can create something amazing i'd say like social network like you know the the type of writer that Aaron Sorkin is doesn't necessarily, it doesn't seem like it would fit with the type of director David Fincher is, but, but the two kind of balance each other out. Whereas this might not be the case. Yeah. I, I actually feel like in, on, on, in, in ways unexpected, maybe we couldn't have predicted before we saw social network, they actually fit together quite well because yeah. they're both very meticulous. Yes. And so I think we got a different, look at how Aaron Sorkin stuff can be done that we've gotten from, you know, a Rob Reiner type. Yeah. But, um, I think there's something in the core of both of those artists that, uh, harmonized. All right. Harmonize. That is a great way of putting it. Yes. Um, I'm very smart. Uh, yeah, I, I can't argue with you. Um, so I mentioned one week. I'll mention it here okay. very briefly. Um, have you seen it? The Buster Keaton? Which one is that? It's the one where he builds a house. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have seen that one. Do you remember back before you and I were, you know, busy adults yeah. like we are now? Like we used to make a big deal out of our profile episodes. Like, oh yeah, it was really more of a chance of like we would trade off like yeah. picking something and then. So I, you know, learned a lot about Buster Keaton and Madeline Kahn because of you, and I think you learned a lot about like Zhang Yimou and Patrice Lacan because yes. of me. Um, and now we're too busy to do that. Now with it's our profiles like, someone we both know about and can talk about at a moment's notice. With yeah. No research. That's, it's, it's unfortunate. We, uh, yeah. uh, maybe we should start rearranging our lives to, to do or, or, or rearranging the way we do the profiles, maybe doing them less often, uh, so that we can give them the rest, the, the time that they deserve. I feel like uh, it has, we haven't been challenging one another with the profiles like we used to in the early days of battleship retention. I think we definitely should not do it, uh, fewer times, uh, every year simply because, uh, based on that survey, listeners really like those profile episodes. Uh, okay. but I think we can, I think we can absolutely, uh, do that where we challenge one another. And if we give each other enough of a, of a warning. One theory we um, have 10 weeks, but we always seem to like decide. It, always, weeks it, it tends to it somehow it springs on us. It is <laughs> yeah. the most predictable aspect of this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, one week is a, is it's his first, um, not feature, but it's his first, it's, it's Keaton's first like notable, uh, like lead role, uh, film. And it's, he and his wife, uh, he and his new wife, they get married and, uh, somebody gives them a, a, a house in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has to build that house, but, uh, the, the jilted, uh, would be lover of, uh, Buster Keaton's wife, uh, screws up the uh, purposely screws up the labels on the boxes. So Keaton builds this house that is this, uh, expressionist turns into this expressionistic <laughs> nightmare. Uh, and, it, and it's delightful. It's everything that a silent comedy should be because, you know, it's, it's, it's completely unpredictable. You know, he will be in what seems to be a normal room and then he walks out the door only to find that the door leads, leads outside, but it's one story up and he just falls right out of it. There's no stairs or anything like that. Uh, but to me, and this is actually what I, uh, what I told my, my students in my, uh, TA section, uh, I talked about, I, I used it as an opportunity to talk about, um, the frame 
and Buster Keaton's uh, obsession with um, with exploring the limitations uh, of film technology and having a deeper understanding of it than a lot of filmmakers at the time. And one thing he understood is that if you if something is outside the frame, it doesn't exist. Mm. It doesn't matter how 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 much logic you, the viewer, bring into this. That logic does not. It goes out the window. If something is outside the, it frame, goes out of the it's, frame, it's exactly, it goes out the frame, the window frame. Um, and so for example, uh, there comes a moment when he and his wife have to move their house, uh, from one lot to another and it gets hung up on some train tracks. Uh-huh. And then off in the distance, here comes a train and they're like trying desperately to move it and they're And they're like, they realize they can't move the house. So they stand away from it and just kind of wait for the impact only to find only to see the train go past the house because it was on a different track Uh and it's like oh what a relief and then uh and then a train comes from the other direction just bashes (laughs) it just tears right through the house now okay strictly speaking they should have known that train was coming too right yes but that train was not in the frame and so it comes literally out of nowhere and not unlike um when you know, if there is a character like in Final Destination, a character standing in the middle of the street and and yelling at somebody and then a bus comes from out of nowhere and hits her. Now, is that, people, that's your go to um, Not mean girls are lost or any of a million other shows and TV and movies go, that I, have done that. Thing. I go with that one. Um, yeah, that maybe that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And so uh, partially because you see, you've seen there's a there's a supercut, of course. Of oh, is there? I don't think I, I haven't yeah, seen it. I should look into it, actually. Um but yeah, uh, this idea of she's standing there, and yes, people do get hit hit by buses. We actually had a friend who just got hit by a car. It's terrible. Um, he's doing much better, by the way. I saw him yesterday. His name is Wade, and thank you to everybody uh, who yes. might have seen our. Uh, uh, it's not ours, but our retweets of the GoFundMe to to help him out financially. And um, yeah, you guys are good people. You're good people, and so. Um, so yeah, she should be able. She's standing in the middle of the street. If she has peripheral vision and she has ears, she, she, she should be able to see that bus or hear that bus coming, yeah. but it's outside the frame. So it doesn't exist. And then it's, it is simply there. And, uh, and so it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's something I didn't even think about until I started researching Buster Keaton way back in, uh, in college. And, uh, and then, and one week is great beyond, uh, just that. Uh, it's just a really marvelous, uh, it's a great example of what silent comedy can be. All right. Um, and it's a great way to get the song one week by bare naked lady stuck in your head. Uh, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. There uh, it is. <laughs> I didn't think about it until oh, I you said it. it. As soon as you said one week, um, you know, I'm a big bear head. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, moving on. Uh, uh, you ever have a movie? You're excited to see it. It comes out. The reviews are just okay. But in your head, you're like, no, nah, this movie's going to be good. Yes. And then it's sort of, you're like, oh, I guess, I guess I should have listened. Yeah. Not that this, this movie isn't bad. I was really excited because I'm a big fan of director Mira Nair. I was very excited for queen of Katwe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it is just an okay movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a pretty by the numbers. It's like, you know, Disney live action sports, um, inspiration story, like true story, especially, um, is a subgenre of its own. Yeah. Uh, this is chess, which is 
I guess more of a game than a sport, but it's the same basic framework narratively. Um, it's like a sport for smart people. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's I, I agree. Um, uh, that's the most controversial thing I've said this episode. Um, uh, anyway, um, the things I like about Mir and I are, are there like there's, she's, it, it's, it's very rich in, in color. Uh, and she finds, um, ways to fill the frame. She finds a way to start first frame, uh, images that's striking and then to fill them with, uh, uh, something, uh, her frames tend to look cluttered and very composed at the same time. Um, that's something I, I really like. And, and, you know, there's a part where the, you know, it's the poor kids, um, in, in Codway, who, which is a Ugandan, uh, village, um, learn chess and a few of them become quite good at it and go and compete in other parts of the country and eventually other parts of the world. And so like the first time they go to like one of the big cities to compete against like the private school kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she has the overhead shot of the room, which is all these tables of all these people um, playing chess. And most of them are in private school uniforms, which are very sort of, you know, monochromatic and they have ties and sweaters and glasses on or whatever. And then you've got peppered throughout the kids in the small town who are in like these um, tattered, but very brightly colored sort of, mm. you know, uh, rags, sackcloth and ashes and all, and, and all that. Uh, it's a very, it's a very striking image, a very Marinier type of image. Um, and stuff it's like, like that, that 1984 Apple commercial. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but more colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so there's stuff like that that I like, but the movie is, it's over two hours long. It's too, it's too long. Um, but, uh, David Oyelowo is the chess coach is fantastic. Like yeah. that, uh, he, he's becoming one of those guys who's just guys who's just completely reliable. You know, he's going to be good in whatever you see. Yeah. I think that's, I'm not sure if he's quite to the point yet where he is a full on draw for me, but he's based on what I've seen, like he might, he might get there at that point uh, at some point. Um, and he, he's not a star yet, but I feel like in a, in a couple years he will be. Um, yeah. So it occurs yeah, to me, you, you'll know once people, once everyone knows how to pronounce his name, there right? you go. There you go. Like there was a, there had to be a point where like people didn't know how to say Rafe finds. Yes. But now everyone does. Yes. That right? is the, yeah. And yeah, that's true. This is off topic. I'm trying to think of some other examples. Okay, yes. Some, this is not a name. But this is something I was thinking about. I was rewatching uh, some Buffy episodes, as I often do. It's probably my most rewatched show. It's my favorite TV show of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, although Hannibal is gaining. Uh, oh. I need to rewatch Hannibal. But um, so I'm watching an, an episode that would have aired. I'm. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly either late 2001 or early 2002 where two characters, uh, Willow and, and Don are, um, going to the movies and Willow needs to make a stop. And Don's like, are we, are we going to make the, the movie? Um, and she's like, Willow's like, we'll be fine. You know, and you know, it's okay if we miss the trailers. And Don says, but I like the trailers. And it got me thinking like when you and I were kids mm-hmm. up to a certain point, they were previews. previous. And it wasn't just because we were kids. Like everyone called them previews mm-hmm. at a certain point everyone learned that the industry term was trailer yeah. and now we all know to call them trailers. When did that happen? Internet. 
I'd say probably late nineties. Once you could, once, once you could actually watch video on the internet in any kind of real way and studios started releasing the theatrical trailer and that's just what we all started calling. So it we that saw point. what the studios were calling it yes. and we realized these are called trailers. And so, yeah, it must've been because by the end of 2001, when this episode was shot, uh, you yeah. know, written and shot, uh, it was conceivable that a character who's 16 years old, a 16 year old high school girl, uh, that's Dawn, um, would have referred to it as a trailer, not a preview. In fact, it's probably even more conceivable that a young kid would know because they, she probably came up, you know, would, she knows the internet. Yeah. Uh, Definitely now a 16 year old. Now everybody calls them trailers. Oh yeah. Um, an eight year old calls them trailers now. There now. And so that's 2001. You said 2002. Uh, yeah, but it, the episode almost certainly would have been written and fought and shot in 2001, late okay. 2001. And so, yeah, 16 year old at that point, uh, might still say previews, but I think it's very f- feasible that Joss Whedon was now, it was then calling them trailers. <laughs> yeah. And might've been calling them trailers his whole life. He seems like the type. Well, he, yeah, he grew up, his dad was a TV writer, so he grew up in the industry. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Um, uh, yeah, his dad wrote for, um, what was that? Um, not Sesame street. The other one like that, um, electric company. Is oh, that yeah, called? that's the one. Yeah. His, yeah. Joss Whedon's dad wrote for the electric yeah. company. They turn on the juice. I know that because I am two and a half hours into OJ made in America oh, where right, they make right. reference to, uh, uh, the electric company. Uh, and so that's what I'll talk about right now. Um, and I'll hold off until I can, until I've seen all of it, you know, in, I don't know, five weeks or so. Um, <laughs> actually, no, it's, it's something I'm going to, going to blow through cause it's remarkably yeah. watchable. Yeah. I did that as well. Here's what, it, what, what it is so far. The most notable things. Um, it's telling two stories. It's telling the story of OJ Simpson and the story of race relations, specifically in regards to the police. Um, and it will take a break from the life of OJ Simpson to talk about, okay, here's what's happening. Uh, here's the Watts riots or something like that. Here's, uh, I'm to the point where it's, it, we're at Rodney King, but it also sets up, Hey, here's Daryl, here's Daryl F Gates, uh, you know, chief of police and what he's doing. And these things obviously seem to have nothing to do with each other. But even if you didn't know, what was eventually going to happen with, with OJ Simpson, even if you didn't know about the trial or anything like that, or the acquittal, um, even if you didn't know that if you were to watch this documentary completely ignorant, you would absolutely see like there is a collision coming. We are seeing two, you know, two runaway trains and they're not running parallel to each other. They are going to meet eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, so fascinating because it's just setting up and it definitely talks about, you know, OJ Simpson in regards to being a, a, a black man in, in a white world and a guy who's perfectly fine with that, um, refusing to take a political stance and all that and the effect that fame is having on him. And so it sets him up as sort of this, this powerhouse and the LA LAPD as this powerhouse. And so it's just, it's, it's, it does such a good job of establishing yeah. these two separate entities that are going to it's it's King Kong meets Godzilla in a way. And uh and so all re- it's just the 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 structure of it I find so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um because now even though I know a lot about the trial, I can't wait. I can't wait to see how how electric it's going to be when these two things finally finally meet. Uh all right. Uh I watched this is my final documentary. Um <laughs> 
uh, of, of, of all time. I'm done. Um, <laughs> I get it. Uh, and this is when I People went in, tickle each other. I think uh, I'm done now. I went into this one with no expectations. It has kind of a silly title and it's also on a subject that we've already seen plenty of documentaries about and I ended up being really impressed by this movie. Uh, it's called my Scientology movie. Oh yeah. Um, uh, who made that? Uh, uh, well, the, it's one of those, the, the director's name is John Dower, but it's, it's the kind of di- docu- documentary, the rare one where the guy who's doing all the narration and interviews and everything isn't the director. Oh, so okay. the guy who's in like the Michael Moore, Moore Morgan Spurlock top r- guy role is, na- is a, a, a British a BBC personality named Louis Thoreau. Okay. Or through, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but he's not the director. The movie says direct at the end. It says directed by John Dower presented by Louis Thoreau. Okay. Which is a weird credit. You don't normally see presented by is Leah Romini uh, featured. Uh, no, in this? no, that was uh, she, she had a, a TV series, TV like series. a docu-series okay. on TV. Okay. Um, yeah, no, this is a different thing. Um, this is the comparison that I, that I'll make is that, um, going clear, uh, the Alex Kimney documentary did a very good job in terms of presenting the history and facts. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what Alex Kimney's documentaries are about they yeah. are about organizing and presenting facts uh with a point of view but it really is they're you know they're alex community's movies about mainlining information a lot of the time yeah. um and i think that's helpful especially someone like me who hadn't done that much research about scientology um um maybe because i tend to um you know I don't believe in any one religion. So when I hear about another religion, I'm like, ah, yeah, that goes in that pile over there. And I don't really think about it. Okay. So I like, I knew there were accusations, but I, unlike a lot of people, I was actually, um, quite disturbed by going clear because I didn't know a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's the information one. What my Scientology, my Scientology, fuck what my Scientology movie does is it says, okay, you know all this stuff and we're going to repeat some of it. But what this is really about is exploring the psychology of a person who's a member mm-hmm. uh, of, 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 of the church of Scientology. Why not just what drove them to it, but specifically what keeps them from leaving even after this awful stuff starts right. happening to them or they see awful stuff happen to others. or they hear, hear these testimonies, like what, what is it like being inside this person's head? And so what the movie does is it's sort of a, in the end it's quite serious, but it's sort of a, if you can imagine it's a comedic version of the, actually this probably doesn't sound that hard to imagine. It's a comedic version of the same tactic of the act of killing where he, Louis Thoreau casts and hires actors to play Sea Org members and specifically to play, to play David Miscavige and to play Tom Cruise. Although they don't really, I feel like they don't really go into the Tom Cruise one. I feel like they just yeah. think it's funny to get a guy to act like Tom Cruise, um, which is, does he do an impression? Uh, of Tom Cruise? Yeah, he, he does the, the video that you've okay, seen, yeah, yeah. but the, the audition process is great because it's a bunch of guys. You see all the auditioners. So you see a bunch of guys showing up trying to look like Tom Cruise. It's, it's, it's funny. Um, but the David Miscavige guy is actually awesome. The director, the actor's name is Andrew Perez. Um, I hope to see him in more stuff because he's fantastic in the movie. Um, and so they're recreating, like when you heard about in going clear, you heard about like the hole where the Sea Org members were kept in like, uh, an office space or a conference room, like, uh, for, they just lived there forever. And David Miscavige would come in and scream at them and throw shit around and rough them up. And so they recreate those scenes or they recreate speeches that he gave, that David Miscavige gave at certain rallies and stuff. 
Um, but what it's really about is the other. So there's a, the main guy is named Marty Rathbun or Mark Rathbun. Uh, Marty. Uh, okay. Marty Rathbun. Um, he's the main guy that Louis throw is like teaming up with, but the, there's a bunch of other former members that he, mm-hmm. that he interviews and get different, different perspectives. But, um, my, and I don't know if this is something that John Dower or Louis throw, um, ever would agree with or said out loud, but I feel like the reenactments are less for the camera and more for Marty Rathbun to say, okay, you left this, you've become a different person. Let's get you back into this so that when we interview about it, you can, you can be in this headspace, or or your, or even if we don't interview your your reactions in the moment. You know, there's a part where David Miscavige is, or not David Miscavige, Andrew Perez as David Miscavige is um, just addressing a group, and he's like, um, and Marty Rathbun is telling him like, here's what David would say, here's what David would say, and then at one point he gets to okay, at the end of the speech he would say, you know to LRH and everyone would look up at the big picture of LRH right. and, and clap. And, uh, he's like, you don't have to do that. And Luther was like, no, I think we should do that. And, and Marty Rathman's like, I don't want you to, he's like, fine, do it. I'm leaving. Like, so he leaves the set while they do the part where he gestures to the big painting mm-hmm. because it's like, it's too raw. And he feels, uh, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating movie. Uh, but what I haven't said about the movie or maybe you haven't gotten into is that it's really funny, <laughs> like way funnier it, it than I expected. Seems like it would be. And a lot of that is down to Louis Throw being just a, uh, like being great at playing the naive inquisitive character. Like no, no matter how much harassed, because they get harassed by the Scientologist, yeah. like constantly. Um, and he just never lets it phase him and keeps like, so there's a part where they're, on a public road near a Scientology facility, which the Scientologists keep insisting is a private road, but he mm-hmm. like has he gets documentation from the you know the the county or the whatever the city to say this is a public road he can be here. But they keep coming and telling him to leave, and so they're filming their documentary, and the Scientologists got like have a guy with a camera just pointed straight at Louis Thoreau, and so Louis Thoreau holds his camera up in that guy's face and says, are you making a documentary as well? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then there's, uh, there's another part where he um, takes Andrew Perez, the David Miscavige guy to this, um, to walk up to um, the, the essentially the movie, the Scientology movie studio where they make all their like uh, infomercials or or whatever, which is a place that is um, surrounded by razor wire. Um, And so they're walking up in at night up to, he's like, so here's the perimeter. I think that's razor wire. And all of a sudden floodlights just like, come on, there's no people on, but floodlights just come on. And then he throws a reaction. It's like, Oh, that's actually quite helpful. Like we can see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a delightful movie that I, um, I think um, serves as a, I think a, a worthwhile companion piece to going clear, Hmm. not not just a a retread or an echo of it. Okay. All right. I spent too much time on that movie, but I just saw it yesterday and I liked it. Okay. Uh, This is a rewatch that I watched in class. It is Frank Capra's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Oh, that's a good movie. Which is a, yeah, it's a delightful film. And, and, the thing that I will uh, mention is stuff that was brought up by my students in my section. The thing that they said today was, wow, that was a really cynical movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and 
they were astonished that a film as old as this um, would. I don't know. I think they. I think they had an image in their mind yeah. of old movies as being quaint. Yeah. And do they know about Billy Wilder yet? <laughs> they will. Okay. <laughs> we we will be watching Sunset Boulevard at some point. Um, though I have I have referenced him, but uh, yeah, but just they just assumed that, Oh, this would be like a really pro American movie. Mm-hmm. And it is in a way, uh, it's, it's the, it's pro the idea of America, yeah. but I think it also understands that what gets in the way is human nature and, and the possibility of corruption and, and, uh, you know, political profit and stuff like that. And so, and in watching it, I myself is like, wow, I did not remember just how full on they destroyed Jefferson Smith. Mm. Um, like the Jim Taylor character. Um, uh, is it Jim Taylor? Yes, Yes. Yes. And, uh, and just how he just gets his, his media machine going and how it really ultimately, the only reason that Jeff Smith wins is because, the Claude Rains character has a pang of conscience and just confesses to everything. And, you know, you can't get, that's really unpredictable. Uh, so it really is just like sort of a fluke that he wins at all. Um, and yeah, and it's, there are moments that are sentimental. There are moments that are silly, but it is, it, it, it really does fit with what I have come to understand Frank Capra uh, is as a filmmaker or was as a filmmaker, which is a guy who definitely believed in America, but also was not, had no illusions about it. Like, uh, it's a wonderful life is a film that yes, ultimately, uh, things go well, but this is a guy who has deep regrets about some of the decisions he's made. And yes, there is a George Bailey in this world, but there is also a Mr. Potter and he has tr- a lot more power and he does not regret anything that he's done. Uh, he is just as much rewarded as anybody else. And so it's a, I don't know. I, I, li- I, I, I like the idea of a clear eyed, look uh, a clear eyed optimism, but, but understanding the way people can be, mm-hmm. um, you know, so when people talk about, you know, a, a film being Capra esque, uh, they usually talk about it as a film that's very, uh, idealistic and maybe even a little bit naive. And it's like, I don't, I think we, that's, that's all, how I've taken the, the term, what I've taken the term to mean. And I feel like we need to adapt it a little bit. It needs mm-hmm. to be, I, uh, I'd say optimistic, but realistic at the same time. Yeah. All right. Uh, final movie for me. And then you also have one more. I have one right? more. Oh, I, did the, I did the math right for once. Um, I watched, this is my last 2016. I need to catch this movie before we do our top okay. 10 list. Or do our, do our top 10 list. So I watched, I went the other direction with it. <laughs> All right. Instead of like, I need to watch this because it's a, an adored movie that I missed out. Yeah. I chose instead to watch something that, uh, it currently stands with a rating of 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. Uh, I watched Dirty Grandpa. Okay. <laughs> and I guess maybe it's going in knowing everyone hated it. It's not as bad as you've heard. Okay. Um, in fact, there are some things that I grudgingly respect about the movie. Um, and I, and I think, I think a lot of the things that people 
hated about it or, or, or pointed to, uh, I didn't like, I, I wasn't at any point like embarrassed for Robert De Niro. I think that that's a, that was a common, uh, reaction that I think was based more on the trailer than maybe the, the movie people yeah. maybe already made up their minds. Um, but, uh, I feel like we passed the point of being embarrassed for him, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, he's I, been I in see some what you're shit. saying, but like, um, what, what I, what I, what I liked about the movie before it ends up being, uh, frankly, really bad by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked about the first half or so, um, maybe in the first hour, uh, is that even when the jokes don't work, which a lot of them don't, um, this movie is fucking going for it. Like yeah. it is not what I thought it was, which was like, uh, you know, pearl clutching, like, let's just have an old man say a bunch of, dirty shit. Like Mm -hmm. this is a raunchy and like intentionally offensive movie. Um, and it knows that it is. And it's, and I, I kind of have to, uh, respect that. I I do, but part of me respects that impulse just to to say, let's, let's go all out. In fact, I mean, it's better like the other Robert Hanger movie that tried some of the same ground this year, the comedian, which is dreadful. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it kind of treads the same ground where it's like we've it is it, making the argument like we're too reactionary and, and PC for lack of a better better term. Um, but the comedian feels like someone who is 20 years out of touch making that point. Mm-hmm. Whereas Dirty Grandpa is like, all right, let's put that to uh, let's put that to practice. Let's make an incredibly un PC uh, movie that is uh, just aggressively. So at every turn, um, and I kind of respected it for a while and then it completely, um, just shoots itself in the foot by being, in the, in the second or in the, like the final stretch being so safe and standard and mm. trying to be a heartwarming, like it does what so many studio comedies do, which is fuck around for an hour and then say, Oh shit, we got to have a story. Uh, yeah. and then like, let's pretend these two were in love the whole time <laughs> or like, yeah. like, Oh wait, like, it's like, was I supposed to be invested in some sort of romance here that yeah. wasn't happening? Uh, and like now I'm suddenly supposed to like, uh, care about this sweet like grandfather grandson moment yeah. like this isn't the movie that we were watching this is the movie that you think a movie has to be i guess yeah um and so yeah the uh, the movie is i mean if it had continued in the vein it was in i would respect it more it wouldn't be a contender for best movie of the year or anything yeah. it would still be somewhere in the middle of the pack for the the whole year but um uh, i would have respected it more but uh it it falls apart and becomes everything it wasn't, uh, at first, um, by the, by the end, uh, it was, it was a, a real bummer, but, um, if it had maintained, uh, it's, uh, it's tone throughout, yeah. would you think, would you say it was actually good? No, that's what I said. If it had maintained what it had done, it would be middle of the pack, middle of the pack. Okay. Now right. it's, it's a bad movie. It's okay. It, yeah, it, it, it is a bad movie. And even like, again, I, I want to say, it misses most of the jokes it goes for. Okay. I have to say, like, I have to admit, um, like there's a part, um, where they go golfing, uh, and, um, uh, uh, Zach Efron's like dressed up in like golf clothes. Cause he's like the dork, the sort of like, uh, you know, 
uh, rich, douchey dork guy. That's his right. character. Um, and uh, they're going to leave the golf course. And, and Robertiro says, uh, come on, let's go, Jack Dickless, which is kind of funny, right? <laughs> yeah. Play on Jack Nicholas. But then he goes on and does like four more puns based on yeah. uh, uh, on golfers. And it's like you had like you had it like I'm not saying that was one of the best jokes of the year, obviously, but you had the joke. You had the button for the scene yeah. with "Come on, let's go, Jack Dickless." But isn't that uh, just the isn't that just the fucking way comedy is now? Yeah, but I guess. But this is the extra. I'm not saying thing. like cut it slack for that reason. I'm saying like it, that's yeah. frustrating. Uh, but I'm saying it's the extra thing of um, uh, um, of it also trying with each one, not just to keep riffing, but to out like gross itself. Or, okay. you, you know, uh, and uh, that's 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 a bummer but then you know there's some stuff that's uh that's funny like when they meet um they they run into people in a diner and one guy is very gay very sort of stereotypically mm-hmm. uh effeminate and gay and robertino makes some gay jokes uh and the guy's like oh that's real funny did you happen to notice i'm black too and robertino is like yeah that's funny too <laughs> <laughs> all right that's a funny joke yeah. right um uh and so the stuff like that is uh is funny and and, and offensive and that's scraping the surface there's some really offensive stuff in the yeah. movie that i just don't want to repeat um, sure but um it, yeah it's the so i was like for a, almost an hour i was like oh, this is not what were people talking about this is not a 10 percent movie this is a this is a 66 mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then it got back down to where i'd probably label it a a 30 Okay. By the end, but not a ten percent. No, it's better than that. Okay, I think a lot of people went in expecting to hate it and were like, "I'm going to get a, I'm, I'm going to get a good mean review out of this." I think a lot of critics were like, "This will be a, uh, this will be a layup." <laughs> Writing a mean review about Dirty Grandpa, um, and it's it's better than that. It's weird. I, it just from the trailer, I, I didn't think it was going to be good, but I certainly didn't feel that level of animosity. It just seemed like, oh, okay, this actually seems like it could be an opportunity for two actors who do have some comedic chops to just like sort of cut loose and maybe they have some chemistry and yeah, it it probably won't be amazing, but I don't, it didn't, it wasn't enough to get me to see it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's odd. I definitely wouldn't have gone in expecting the worst or or even wanting to. It is a terrible title. Yes. The title sounds like it's a super lazy movie. I think so. A lot of people felt that it was going to be that. Yeah, I guess there is that. Yes. Um, okay. So my last movie, um, and Ever. then let, you know what? Yes. This is the note to go out on. Um, I saw John Lee Hancock's the founder. Oh, which I liked quite a bit. Good. Um, I haven't seen it. the reason that I was most interested in it aside from, you know, uh, it seemed like an interesting story and I like Michael Keaton was John Lee Hancock is a director who he made the Alamo, which you and I liked, but he also made the blind side, which, uh, negated the Alamo several times over for me. (laughs) Um, I never even saw the blind side. I liked, I liked the rookie. I didn't see the rookie. Um, and I didn't care for saving Mr. Banks, which you liked. I did like, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that he was, um, a great filmmaker. I would say he, there's a, a sentimentality to him that he steers right into. But I, and so I was curious to see him direct this film because from a script by Robert Siegel, who wrote the wrestler and I think wrote big fan. So oh, I don't think I realized that he wrote. That. So we've got, 
you know, so we have this, it's a true story, but it's a very cynical story, uh, written by a guy who is not prone to sentimentality, but it's directed by this other guy. So I was interested to see how these two tones would work. And I think it works really well because you have a director who is willing to, and I think this is on purpose. I don't think he's, you know, just uh, on autopilot or anything like that. I think he understands the the nature of the story he's telling, but he chooses to tell it the way Ray Kroc probably sees himself. Or at the very least, he, he directs the film in the way Ray Kroc um, is presenting McDonald's mm. as this all, you know, I think he said like the new American church, like the, he goes, it's, he keeps saying it's America. And so in a way it makes sense to get somebody like John Lee Hancock, who has, I think very, um, very middle brow sensibilities and, and makes films like the blind side, which is, I'd say like an idealized version of reality. Um, and so, so you have, so in a way it is this, it, it's sort of like, the, sort of like the music of Nightcrawler. You remember the music is actually kind of inspirational. It's it's all about mm-hmm. oh this guy who's oh, triumphing right, right. over adversity. He's an absolute crazy. Per- he's a psychopath, yeah, um, and he's doing terrible things to people. But he is in his own mind succeeding. The film is sort of like that, um, and so and. and I don't know. It, it reminded me in some ways of like other people's money, although it's not quite as cynical as that uh, in that it definitely takes the point of view of Ray Kroc. It still recognizes that he's doing terrible things to other people, but I think it's still when he, when he makes this argument for what he is doing and the nature of, of anything great that has happened and how often thievery is involved. Um, you know, there's a point to be made in this and he, he goes through and he lists like, you know, what is it that makes, that makes men great? How can these, uh, how are these things, these, these amazing, you know, corporate empires or, or an invention or something like that? How does that come about? It's not, you know, it's not the misunderstood genius or anything like that. It's the guy who's willing to persist, you know, against all odds. And so, you know, given, uh, a movie like Steve jobs or the social network or something like that, where there's almost always someone who says like, Hey, why aren't you giving me credit? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you'll get a certain degree of credit, but when it comes right down to it, you are thinking way too small and I need someone and you need some for this to, to, to spread at all, to grow, you need somebody who's willing to see the big picture. So I'm not on the side of Ray Kroc. He really did screw up the McDonald brother, uh, screw over the McDonald brothers mm-hmm. played wonderfully by John Carroll Lynch and Nick Offerman. Um, but, uh, but he does make a point that is uncomfortable, but probably true. Um, so it's, 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 I don't think it's necessarily a great movie, but it is, it is a very, very interesting one. Um, should we move on to TV? Yes. You have a bunch of, you're taking a class, so you have a bunch of yeah, TV to talk about. Yeah, I'm, I watched a lot of TV that people can't see anymore, so I can't well, really recommend them. Why don't you run through some stuff? Okay. I saw the original TV version of Marty. Oh, cool. Um, 
in which Rod Steiger plays Marty, not Ernest Borgnine. And that in itself is fascinating because the script is essentially the same. Uh, so you get to see what these two actors do with it. And, and I'm a huge fan of Rod Steiger, but I, I don't think he's actually the person to play that role. He actually makes the character seem a little bit uh, creepy at times, but it was very interesting nonetheless. Uh, I saw the Martha Ray show, which I think you would enjoy tremendously. Um, Martha Ray is someone I was largely unfamiliar with. She's sort of like, I'd say a precursor to Carol Burnett. Um, and so it was this variety show and she would do it once a month and it's a full hour long. It's a little bit too long in my opinion. And it's got singing and dancing and it's got sketches and the sketches all have a sort of a story to them. And so this one featured, uh, uh, Cesar Romero as a character named Cesarino, who is absolutely based on Liberace. There's no question about it. <laughs> and there comes a moment. I wish this were a video podcast at this point. So I'm going to show you and listeners, you're going to hear uh, some disturbing sounds here. Um, there comes a moment. It's a wonderful bit of physical comedy. So Cesarino is a pianist. And so he, uh, there comes a moment when he needs to warm up his hands. So he chooses to do this. He goes, So he just smashes his hands on the table as though to like get the blood flowing. Uh-huh. And it's, it's absolutely hilarious. I, uh, but, uh, but Martha Ray herself is just kind of this very manic performer, uh, who, but who is still very ingratiating. And, it, and I was very glad I saw it. I liked it a lot. Um, I saw, a, a show called mama, one episode of the show mama, I have heard the term "I remember Mama." Do you remember that? Have you have you heard that that phrase? Uh, yeah, I think. Okay, so. so apparently there was a book called "I Remember Mama," which was then turned into a play, which was then turned into a movie, which then became a TV series, which at that point just became Mama. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting. It's about this Nor- these Norwegian immigrants who moved to oh, San wow. Francisco and are just trying to make a life for themselves, and. Um, and it's 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 a pretty decent show, pretty well written, very well acted. Uh, brought to you by Maxwell House, um, and at the end, there's an extended Maxwell House commercial where it shows all these beans and uh, damned if I didn't want some coffee afterwards, and I got it, and it was delicious. And but it's it's I don't know. First off, you know this show came about in the late '40s, and I honestly did not expect. You know, when when you think about early TV, I didn't expect to see this very popular show about immigrants um, and the life of an immigrant and in doing so kind of exploring certain elements of, of America. So I, I thought it was really well done and, and, uh, and I'd be interested in actually watching the movie, even though it doesn't share any cast members. Um, I watched an episode of father knows best. Okay. Which is itself rather interesting. Uh, there are moments that it's kind of amusing, but boy, oh boy, TV has definitely <laughs> changed since then. Um, and uh, ultimately, <laughs> the conflict of this episode is the father uh, is not able to come through. Uh, you know, the there's like a, a, a baseball game that was maybe going to come to this, uh, this city. Uh-huh. Um, and ultimately it didn't happen. And like the, the father has nothing to do with this, but the kids are saying like, Oh dad, like you, you have, you have like connections with people. Can't you make this happen? He's like, well, I'll do my best. And then he, he like 
reaches out to the various like city officials that he happens to know and says like, okay, well, what can we do to actually bring this, you know, this famous baseball player and, and have this sort of novelty game? Like, how can we bring this here? And so, um, and the way to do it is he has to sort of help get, uh, something passed on the city council and he doesn't feel right about that. And so he ultimately says no. And now he's disappointing his kids and that he's never, he's literally never done that before. <laughs> and it's this big existential crisis for everybody. Cause you know, for the, for once in the history of the world, father does not know best, except he does. He knows best. He yeah. knows best, but now his kids are disappointed. Oh, but they're not disappointed because he knows best. It's it's well acted and it's well written, but it's just, boy, it's a relic of the time. Um, I was glad I saw it, though. So let's see. Marty, Martha, Red Father, and Mama. Um, I watched part one of Roots, the uh, oh. the miniseries, which I had seen before. And I've never seen it. I, mean, I saw the... The new one. Oh, okay. But the yeah. new one's just a TV movie, right? No, it was also a, it was a miniseries, a eight oh, hours or whatever. Oh, I didn't know it was that long. Okay, uh, yeah, this one is is good. It definitely feels like it was made in a in a different time where they didn't seem to be so bent on realism. Um, okay, it doesn't really feel like you're looking at what. Uh, uh, an old ship would actually look like it's more, it's like when you watch an old Western where you know that, you know, objectively the old West is probably a lot dirtier than this. Oh, right. Everything looks kind of clean and kind of crisp. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's very good. And LeVar Burton is marvelous, uh, as Kunta Kente. Um, and that actually does a good job. I was talking earlier about OJ made in America. It shows, you know, the ship, and and you saw the new miniseries. Maybe it's structured the same way. You see the ship that's going to eventually a slave ship that is on its way to Africa, and the captain is not in favor of slavery. He just his job is to just run the ship, and he's just like really conflicted about it. But ultimately, he decides to just do his job. That's not in the new one at all. Is it okay? That's, yeah, I I, I, re- I actually read about that mm-hmm. that the that um. Uh, I don't think that character is in Alex Haley's novel either. I think oh, okay. that was sort of a concession to like in the 1970s version, like, you know, a lot of white people are going to be watching this. They should have, you know, maybe like, you know, modern day, you know, <laughs> uh, white people maybe want someone they can uh, get behind or relate to. And, and, but the, what's, and, and he's played by Ed Asner, by the way. No. So, you know, Lou Grant. Uh, yeah. But what's interesting is that the character he, he's conflicted about it, but he ultimately decides that he's going to turn the other, you know, look the other way. And I think the, I think the show does condemn that. Um, okay. and so I feel like, you know, if I were, a, if I were a white person watching it and feeling like, like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He's, he's, he's conflicted. I'm, I, I probably would be as well. It's like, Oh shit. <laughs> he still just let it happen. That's unfortunate. Anyway. So we see the ship and then we see Kunta Kinte like being raised and, and going through these various ceremonies to become a man. Uh, we actually see in one scene, OJ Simpson as, uh, like the father of, uh, some, uh, some woman right. that Kunta Kinte uh, encounters. Um, and so we see, we see these two things and we know that they're going to collide and we know that when they do, it's going to be very, very tragic. So, and, but we only watched part one. Uh, let's see. Is that it? Nope. Two oh, more. No, two more. Uh, I watched a, an episode of a wonderful show called Julia, uh, which featured Diane Carroll, I think. 
Okay. Um, and it's about this, uh, this, uh, African-American woman in the late sixties whose husband was killed in Vietnam and she's raising a young son and she's a nurse and she's looking for work, uh, and just trying to navigate what it is to be a, a single mother. Um, and it's, uh, there's some real, there's some real drama there. There's some humor. Her kid is adorable. Um, and, and I glad I, I I'm glad I saw it. I didn't, I had never heard of it. Um, but it was very, it was very effective. That same day we did watch the Amos and Andy show. And, uh, uh that is, uh, you know what? couple of good lines in there. Uh, uh-huh. but when it comes right down to like, Oh, this is, it's hard to say if it's, if it could be considered full on racist, because I can't even, the characters of Amos and Andy, as far as I can tell, don't fit with any, any conception that I know of, any like negative conception I know of, of like yeah. what black people are. But based on readings that I've been doing at the time, there was an image of like black men specifically as just like, they're kind of like troublemakers and ne'er-do-wells. Now the, the situations they find themselves in are standard sitcom fare. Mm-hmm. Like it, it could, it could be Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton really. Um, but the fact that they were, the fact that they're black, uh, made, you know, any, any white viewer who might see that they wouldn't instinctively think like, yep, that's how black people are, but they wouldn't not think that either. They would, um, they would be less, for example, if they watch the honeymooners, they think like, Oh, that Ralph and mm-hmm. oh, that Ed Norton. Whereas in this, yes, there's Amos and Andy, but it might just be like, Oh, that's that whole community. Um, okay. so it, it's a, it's sort of a, a stereotype that I think has gone away over the years, but uh, apparently it was, it was, uh, much more, uh, prevalent at the time. I had a similar experience one, uh, a while ago. I watched, uh, uh, I won't get into the movie, but I watched a, a movie and I was uh, talking to someone at work who's um, maybe ten years older than I am. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. And I was like, and I was like, oh, I watched this movie. I really liked it. And he was like, he's like, oh, I can't stand the homophobia in that movie. And I was like, eh, there's lesbian characters, but I didn't like nothing registered as homophobic to me. And it yeah. really was just like a, a, a sort of a generational thing that like yeah. the movie probably was homophobic at the yeah. time, but stereotypes have gone away to the point where it went completely over my head. Yeah. There's, there's an element uh, that people at the time could almost say like, well, we all know what this means. Right. And, but you definitely have to be of the time to know what it right. means. Um, so that's, that's all I saw. And you watched something that you were unhappy with. Oh, the, I, if you've been listening to our TV segments, you probably haven't, you probably turn off by the time you get to TV. Um, but, uh, my, one of my favorite new shows of the, of the season has been the good place. And I know this puts me in the minority, but I hated the finale. It's a big twist finale and I hate it so much. Turns out it was a superhero show. (laughs) Like, um, you can ask uh, my 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 wife Natalie. I mean, you can because you don't know her. But uh, like, it's been a couple weeks now since it aired, and every once in a while, we'll just be at home, and I'll be like, "Here's the thing that I really <laughs> like." I'm still thinking about it. Like two and a half weeks later, like I really hated the the twist, and I know a lot of people like it, but I feel like I don't want to give away what the twist is. But basically, there were there were hints throughout the season that the, this good place wasn't what it seemed, or there was something more 
sinister going on here. Um, and I think the reason that a lot of people maybe like the twist is because it confirmed that it, it, it says like, yep, they knew what they were doing. They mm-hmm. did this on purpose. Those things you were picking up on, uh, all, all fit. And so I understand that, but I think the twist gives too easy an answer. It set up a more complex place than just the, like, you know, the, the, there's the good place and the bad place. Like mm-hmm. it set up, that there were more complexities and that was really intriguing to me. Um, and, um, Ted Danson's character, Michael, who's sort of a celestial being was my favorite character on the show. And there were weird things about him. And I was like, I can't wait. I could watch seasons of the show, like figuring out, uh, what the real sort of, you know, moral code and, 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 uh, and dominating philosophy of this place is. And then I, and then the, the, the twist, it just made it, it, it gives, it gives you too easy an answer for everything that I was pondering over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, it's now everything can be explained away. And I, yeah. uh, I did. So it, I, I didn't hate the twist because it doesn't make sense. I hate the twist because almost because it makes too much sense. Like yeah. it's the, it's the easiest answer. Uh, and I find that to be, uh, quite a bummer. Uh, yeah, that is, uh, and most people seem to seem to like it. If any, if anything, because I think based on reviews that I've read and people I've talked to there, I feel like there's an element of like, Holy shit, a twist that, and it's a twist that officially works. So they can't find fault in it. And I think people may just, I think people are just suckers for like, Oh, this is not (laughs) what I thought it was. Yeah. Um, now I know we need to end. We really do. But actually I, I, something was on my mind uh, ever since our uh, abortion discussion, obviously. Okay. Um, Here's, I wanted to mention something and I'll try not to get emotional about it. Um, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. Okay. Cause I'm not sure. <laughs> I heard, I heard this story about Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck. Charlton Heston noted conservative Gregory Peck noted liberal. Okay. And they were very good friends. And I, I heard the story on actually some political podcast in which this guy was talking about like, telling the story that I think someone was asking Gregory Peck, like, how can you be friends with Charlton Heston? Don't you know these things that he believes? And he said, well, I can be his friend because he's my friend. Uh Um, I don't understand why he believes the thing he thinks he believes. And yeah, there are times when I feel I, I worry that his beliefs, if they were to be enacted or whatever, like I feel like that'd be, it'd be bad for this country, but I still get along with him. He's somebody whose company I enjoy. And, uh, and I feel like just based on stuff that I've witnessed on Facebook and on Twitter, I feel like, I mean, I I get so many people saying like, Oh, I have I've unfriended people. I've, I've unfollowed people. And just like you, it's, if you don't think this, you can unfollow me. So David and I literally just had a conversation about literally the, the idea of bodily autonomy, which is, you know, freedom Mm -hmm. and the idea of personhood, which is about, you know, life and and, and, and saying that something is, is a life. These are big giant concepts and things you and I are both very passionate about. And we disagree on it. And, um, sorry, sorry. And yet here we are after all these years, close friends, we've remained hosts of this show 
and we know a lot of people who have split up over less uh, <laughs> as far as podcast hosts. Yeah. And I just like, and I'm sure there are people, it, obviously everyone has stopped listening at this point once we said the words TV, but um, the letters, I guess. Um, but that's the thing is just like, there are people, there are probably people that were upset with what I said and maybe people that are upset with, with what David said, but like, please know that this is how it, I think how it should go is people expressing disagreement and you don't, you can be passionate and, and, but you can still be civil and you don't even have to stop talking to this other person. Like what we are talking about are, are again, huge concepts. But it, but our disagreement does not, does not, uh, negate our, our friendship. And I don't know, it's something that I've always liked about this show. It's something that I've always liked about our friendship Mm -hmm. and it's something that I would encourage other people to, uh, embrace. Uh, there's nothing I can say except that I agree with you. All right. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 